Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We are here. Huh? What was that? Uh, Super Mario Brothers? <laughs> yeah, I know what it is. <laughs> mushrooms. Uh, uh, okay, yes, we'll okay. Mushrooms. Um, very interesting chat today. We're here Fuck with yeah. Dr. Stephen Bright. Um, we got to talk a bit more about his specialty, which was addiction that we didn't get to talk to last uh, mm-hmm. last time. Yep. But uh, before we do, this is if you are on <laughs> mushrooms or alcohol and you have an injury at work. Mm. Don't tell them, but you are covered by alltradescover.com.au. As you, as you can see behind the good doctor yeah. there, alltradescover.com.au. For uh, new listeners that don't know, uh, if you are a sole trader, they are specifically made for you for mm. public liability, indemnity, uh, any of your tools get stolen or uh, whatnot. For the small guy. Yeah. Um, this episode is also brought to you by, I can't believe we're going to say this because we just <laughs> talked about how the, the, the problem, but uh, Raunchy. Raunchy Brewing, they are the beer that's actually good. In they, moderation. In, everything in moderation, Delby. They've, uh, they've got some good beers, some good selection. You love the Heavy Diesel. The only I gate, love the Lager and the Sir Henry's The Scout. only gateway drug Raunchies is to other Raunchies. Just <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, we appreciate your support um, and yeah, Ian, bloody so awesome. We'll see you at the Christmas party on Friday the 15th. All listeners are welcome. Tickets are available via the Hard Yarns Instagram. Mm. We're sharing the Christmas party with Raunchy and uh, Ian Jeffrey Motors. And we're already up to 20 sales plus all of the guests that would like to come. Oh, so good. How bloody good. Um, But aside from that, we were joined by the good doctor, Dr. Stephen Bright. Late entry for best episode or mind-blowing episode of the year. I'm very very excited. I'm up and about this episode. Yeah, very good episode. We love our brains being stimulated. We talked... uh, Heavily on the topic of psychedelics and depression. But uh, can you recall well, yeah. <laughs> what we spoke about today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got um, psychedelics without being psychedelics. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, we talked about Psilocybin. the two houses. Um, tenacious. Tenacious house, yeah. Shalom house. Shalom yeah, house. So we talked a bit about um, residential alcohol rehabilitation, mm-hmm. um, substance use disorders, more generally dependence. Mm-hmm. And um, pill testing, the yeah. benefits, the cost benefit analysis, how to actually improve society. I think we solve society's problems today. Yeah. <laughs> and how that uh, prevention is obviously a, a thing that we need to address, as well as yeah. treatments that we have available to us can be yeah. used um, as well. Lots so. of cool clinical um, chats about clinical trials of uh, mushrooms and MDMA, mm. um, all the things that are happening with Australian law at the moment. Ah, and the best ways you can prep. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, you're going to love this episode. Fucking awesome. You're going to absolutely love it. Um, so, let's get hard. Let's get sticky. <laughs> let's get sticky. I don't know why. But uh, <laughs> Welcome to Hard Yarns Podcast. I am fucking fat. <laughs> <laughs> Anything 
Chris White says, please <laughs> disregard it. 5D is actually a state of being. It's a unity consciousness. That was Hard Yarns with me, Frankie Rose. So I'm going to throw it over to your co-hosts. Daniel Jelby and Cameron Branch. I would do this and then I'd gong. <laughs> Free in attendance for the millions listening at home. <laughs> Let's get hard. Beautiful. All right. Fish on. Um, Fuck yeah. So now we can actually, <laughs> I feel like, uh, <laughs> chat been, freely private. <laughs> we've been um, holding back a little bit. Yeah. Uh, trying not to... To to let the listeners miss out on all the good stuff. On the juice, yeah. on the juice, on the juice, on the juice. So what, it was about just about a year and a half, maybe, or a year ago when we came I, back I on. a year and a half, possibly more. Yeah. It looked like 2021. Yeah. Mm. Really? Wow. Wow. Fuck, it only feels, to me, it feels like midway through last year. So, yeah. yeah. One of one of my favourite episodes, though. Oh, um, definitely. I feel like we only scratched the surface, but... Oh, and that's and hence why we've got him back on. Yeah. But before we uh, get into things, there's two things I want to chat to you about. One, the work you've been doing with James Clark. I don't know if you can talk too much about that sort of stuff. I'm just trying to put it all together. Um, so, is that's the work with a PhD student at Curtin University who's looking at physical activity and the impact that it might have on reducing relapse. Correct. Um, in alcohol and other drug treatment services. Yeah, so it's a PhD student's project. Um, mm-hmm. He's... Uh, I've actually known him since 20, 2018. He's been quite interested in psychedelic science. He wanted to do a PhD in Australia. He's from Germany. And um, this project sort of just just uh, emerged and, and was a good fit with sort of his background working, in, working as a psychologist. And um, so initially we were proposing to do um, a, a trial of a physical activity intervention and, say, compare it with a different rehabilitation service. But right. we've ended up working with Tenacious House, who are a local for-profit um, alcohol and other drug rehabilitation service. But they have a, a really big focus on physical activity there already. Yeah. Yes. And so the project's changed slightly. So now the project's looking at... When, see, when people come into to residential rehabilitation, at a place like Tenacious, they'll get into a good routine of, of engaging in physical activity but once they go home again yeah that just falls off so mm-hmm. sasha's project's really about seeing how we can get people to maintain that activity after they leave because we know that physical activity is associated with improved psychological outcomes you know things like psychological well-being yep. and consequently it makes sense that um, physical activity is also a buffer against relapse now yeah. this is we should preface this with people listening that is in treat, treating addiction Using Great. physical activity to treat addiction, right? Mm. So, <clears throat> what um, what what sort of programs do they put in place? Is that like, oh, go join a gym, get a PT, or is, here's a program, or because that would be the hardest thing, yeah. Tenacious is uh, very holistic. It's, it's it's like a property out the back of, out towards almost uh, Ullsbrook. Ullsbrook, yeah, yeah, and yeah, they just sort of all stay in this property and, and yeah. But work once they leave, I'm saying, how do you? Because that's like me, like I go to the gym, I'm like, I'm going to go back every day, and then you just don't. Mm. So like. Yeah, so so it's a, it's actually about the um, increasing the person's motivation while they're on site. Yeah. So it's not really about um, 
making sure they're set up with all of those things because at Tenacious, they all they actually every every client there leaves with a with PT sessions yeah. and and whatnot. But that okay. doesn't mean that alone isn't enough for them to continue with that routine. So mm, yeah. it's really about building people's motivation while they're while they're a resident on site. Yeah. So and ideally that motivation will hold up after they leave. But yeah. we'll have to wait and see. Like this isn't something that's been examined before. So okay. it's it's really seeing whether it works or not. It yeah. may it may not work. And it's yeah. interesting for them because they are a, a drug rehabilitation program. <clears throat> they wouldn't subscribe to the psychedelic uh, reforming, would they? Or would they, they'd be fully against it, I guess? But I haven't no, really they're, they're actually not against it. They're, 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 like most people, just genuinely curious about what's going on and what it all means. Mm-hmm. Um, because Tenacious isn't, isn't so much an, an AA or NA facility, mm-hmm. um, I think... I think maybe the Salvation Army might be looking at the psychedelic stuff with a bit really? more suspicion. I wouldn't have, oh, with suspicion. <laughs> I thought you were yeah. like, with, a, with a bit more interest. I was like, like I wouldn't have said that. It's the gateway to God, <laughs> Delby. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, we can't we can't be um, willy nilly handing out passes as to who gets to d- directly communicate with God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so who who is um, Tenacious uh, House built for? Is that and is it addiction of all types or is it a specific addiction? Uh, primarily alcohol and other drug addiction yeah um so they primarily see people with alcohol use disorder and methamphetamine use disorder they're the yep. two primary presenting conditions they're also very much set up as a male facility yeah um so you know there's there's other rehabilitations in perth like serenian house or um, palmerston which have co-ed uh, male and female living together whereas mm-hmm. tenacious is very much a male only facility yeah. and with a focus on on men's health i guess yeah mm. is there any um uh, research that indicates whether it's better or not to have all male all female or co-ed like oh yeah you know? not that i'm aware of i yeah. think i uh, i i think sometimes research like that's not very helpful because it sort of aggregates everything together it averages everything together and yep. for some people that male only facility would be really good for them for other people not so good so yeah. it's really about having lots of different options so that people can find the best fit for them yeah. because what's a good fit for one person won't be a good fit for the another uh, for another and is everybody there voluntarily correct yeah okay so they're all wanting to get yeah, off whatever they're to, on yeah mm-hmm. yeah right <coughs> that's well, a place where you cannot go you cannot be taken there it has to be you have to go under your own yeah and you said for profit, like this is something I've always wondered. I'm 36 and I still don't really know a for profit and a non profit. As far as I know, non for profits still make a fuckload of money for the people that work there. What's the different difference there? Yeah, it's, it's look, I'm 44 and I still struggle to get back around this. Because look, you can get, get for profit organizations that operate with social responsibility and, yeah. you know, are doing great things in our, in our society. And you can have um, not for profit organizations that are, um, I'm trying to find a nice, a nice word. <laughs> not working in the best they're, interest they're, of. Yeah, they're, they're not working in the interest of the Australian society. So, yeah, yeah I think the distinction between between for-profit and not-for-profit sometimes isn't that helpful. And like you say, you can have people working for a not-for-profit that are making shitloads of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could, similarly, you could have somebody working for a for-profit organisation that's not pulling you know, that, that's not pulling that sort of money because of the, it depends on the, the way the business has been set yeah. up. Mm-hmm. I know the, one of my mates, his office is next door to or rented from the head of Salvation Army. He reckons he is filthy, filthy rich. He's like, <laughs> he is absolutely rolling and it's a not-for-profit. He's like, what the hell? Mm. So, but yeah. um, what was the one that's caused a lot of controversy was um, Slalom House. They keep 
that's always in the news because you're an addiction specialist. That's and you your got field. A part of the watchdog as a way the the media. Uh, yeah, covers yeah. It what's as well. the go with that? And because this is the first time I've heard of um, the Tenacious House, yeah, but that just sounds right up our alley because we focus yeah, a lot on mental health. Which tenacious is, is a lot smaller. Yeah, Shalom House is, has, as you know, it's got quite a lot of publicity. Yeah, and it hasn't always been good publicity, and so it's you know it's a controversial service, and I don't want to, um, I don't want to get in too much That's trouble. Fine. You can stay neutral on it. Well, I, I mean, I've, I already dipped my toe in the water of this when I was moving from Melbourne to Perth, mm. so. Australian Story did a piece on um, Shalem and, and the founder of Shalem House. Mm. And it was, you know, it was a great advertorial for Shalem. Yeah. Um, and myself and a couple of other colleagues wrote some responses for Australian Story that they published on their website. They had to shut down their Facebook page wow. because they were getting so much hate on Facebook that they had to actually turn off their Facebook page Fuck, in 24 wow. hours. Wow, um, that's a shame. Yeah, so you've got to be careful what you say yeah. because cl- clearly Shalom has helped some people and yeah. those folks, um, you know, if you say mean things about Shalom House, they come after you. Yeah. And likewise, I've heard some horror stories of people that have tried to access help that way right. and, um, you know, just have, have not received the help that they're, they're what, after. What is that? Is that a privately run place? Yeah, is it a religious run. institution or is it? I think it, it's run sort of from an, an AANA model, so right. it kind of has that idea that um, you surrender to God. That's okay. part of the, the treatment program. It, it's definitely private, and it's it's a for, I believe it's for profit, but I'm not right. sure. And I think the the reason it's had so much media con- controversy is because of the way that they do treatment. It's really like a hard love treatment boot okay. camp type thing. Yeah, um, folks that are folks that are working through their recovery there would be put on the tools and sent out on to you know to to do a some sort of a job construction right. job or something like that. So mm. while they're, they're dealing with rec- like. The sweats and the yeah, all the and and so some people find that helpful, but yeah. a lot of people don't find that helpful. And mm. and sort of the evidence based approach, which which um, uses motivational interviewing, it's the same sort of intervention that my PhD student Sasha is using at Tenacious House. Is really about collaborating with the person, sort of coming together with the person, yeah. finding out. Well, from their perspective, why do they want to change? There's no point telling someone why they want to change. They already mm. know. So it's about evoking yeah. from them, right. um, you know, sort of where they're coming from. It, 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 there has to be a sense of benevolence that you're, you're going in to do a good thing, that you're yeah. not trying to screw people over. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so, so sort of the, the treatment that Tenacious offers doesn't really fit within that evidence-based framework. So... You know, they're quite controversial both among um, academics like myself because they're, they're sort of doing their own thing. They're quite... Who, Tenacious are or Shalem? Shalem. Shalem, yeah. And they're kind of um, controversial in the media because you do get this polarisation. You've got people that really love what, yeah. what, what Shalem are doing and you've got people that absolutely hate what they're doing. Mm. As soon as you've got that polarisation, journalists, mm. journalists love, love yeah. that. And it's good for marketing. Yeah. But I, I suppose, like... Just hearing the bare bones of it, if you have maybe felt some sort of self hopelessness or no sense of direction, and then you're going to a place where it gives you a job to go out and help people, gives you some sort of purpose, mm. which I think is that a major thing in addiction where that people are lacking a purpose, or is it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's what, one of the main reasons people relapse yeah. is that 
Um, even in even in services like Tenacious, we'll get people doing things like gardening. Yeah, um, yeah, they're, yeah. they're doing things where they've got to take responsibility. They're looking after other people that are on site, and that's giving them a sense of purpose. But yeah. if they leave the facility, go back to their own home, maybe they don't have a job, yeah. and so the purpose isn't there anymore. And, and then we wonder why people relapse, yeah. whereas in other countries, for example, in Portugal, where they've, they've decriminalised all drugs... Um, if you're caught in possession of a small amount, they do an, you get an assessment to, so they can find out whether you've got a, a drug problem or not. Mm. Um, and if you're identified to have a, a substance use issue, then it's recommended that you, you access treatment, so they'll refer you into treatment, but it's not mandatory. It, it, you still have to agree to, to go with that. Yeah. Because they've, they've stopped spending so much money on law enforcement for mm. that personal possession stuff, they've put all of that money into treatment. Then when people come out of what's a really good treatment service because they've put a lot of money into it, mm. um, they they make sure that the person comes out of treatment into a job. Yeah. So they've got tax benefits for employers that will that are hire people coming out of treatment services, yeah, wow. nice. and ideally they have them located in a different place than where the person was living and using drugs, so mm. that they're in a different geographical region. They've got a job, so they've got meaning and purpose. That you know they've got some money coming in, and they don't have those old connections to, to leverage if if they you know are, are getting a craving. Would that mean they actually relocate the whole person to a new? like housing estate or whatever Correct, it is. Yeah. yeah, right. And That makes so much sense. And then purpose obviously is a uh, huge driving motivator between sta- uh, behind staying sober. Um, uh, but for, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the Portugal one, did they start giving micro loans to help uh, set, set up their own small businesses as well? Was that something that I read? Look, that I'm not sure, but that sounds mm. like something Portugal would do. It, you know, they, they really are thinking outside of the box because mm. like, like what's happened in so many countries, including Australia in 1986 when Bob mm. Hawke first introduced our um, harm minimisation strategy, um, a lot of countries go through this process where they realise what they're doing is not working. They need to throw it out and just start from scratch, which is what we did in '86. But we haven't done that for you know we haven't done it I since. Did, yeah. And Portugal did it in about 2000, 2001. Um, so over 20 years ago. But a similar sort of story where the country's gone. What we are doing is not working. Let's throw everything out and start again. Yeah, and I know we need to do that. But politicians are so heavily ingrained and old school that they just yeah. I can't see that. Can what? Well, you're in the industry. Can you see that? No. Yeah. In the near future, I think we spoke about this very brief. We we barely touched on addiction last time, but like, well, dependence. Yeah. Remember, yeah, dependence. Very good. Yeah. Very yes, good. I remember. He so, does call yeah, it dependence. Can you, is there anything in our future or our near future? Or is it not even being discussed? It's such a slow road. Like yeah. I've been working in this sector now for over twenty years, and on one hand, it doesn't feel like there's been any progress in over twenty years, but mm. there have been little wins. Not necessarily. Well, even some in, in Western Australia, but the, the, the examples I can think of are a, a safe injecting room in Melbourne. Like, that's that's a huge win for drug policy. Um, the Sydney facility is now an ongoing... It's got ongoing funding. It's not a trial anymore. Uh, and the Melbourne facility is the same. But, like, when, when you look at other parts of the world, it seems like they're moving 100 miles an hour yeah. towards progressive drug policy. So Canada's, um, you know, legalised various drugs... A number of states in the US now have, have got you know, recreational access to cannabis. Oregon and Colorado have legalised psychedelics. So yeah. it seems, yeah, so on one hand, it doesn't feel like we, we're, we're progressing very 
far in Australia. We are definitely moving forward and in the right direction. Mm. And, you know, with things like drug checking, for example, mm. um, I guess I was first starting to, to talk about that in the media around 2014, 2015, 2016. And, yeah, there's been a couple of trials in Canberra now. They've got a you know fixed site testing service. Queensland has bit the bullet and... Um, you know that they're now going to fund some drug testing over over this summer yeah. um, in Queensland, but it's going to take a while for other states to catch up. And I think you know I don't think Western Australia will be the next state to, to roll out. If any testing. state, we're like the highest fucking methamphetamine well, capital, other than Adelaide, aren't we at the moment? But I mean, you don't really want to. T- Testing meths is more like for recreational drugs, right? Yeah, more, yeah. more for MDMA. So yeah. or ecstasy being, you know, what, what's actually in that ecstasy capsule yeah. or ecstasy pill that a person's using. I uh, think that's a great move because it's such, it's one of the drugs that I think are one of the minimal harm, I might be wrong, but it's such a, a minimal harm for what it is. And if it's pure. It has a high risk. If it's contaminated, people are taking more and that does more damage than good. Absolutely, and the the evidence is clear. People use less drugs when there's drug testing happening at a festival. Because, you know, there's this argument in the Australian media that it's going to give people the green light to use drugs. Well, people are already going to that festival intending to use drugs. So the research is showing new people that weren't going to use drugs don't start taking them when there's stuff on site testing. And people use less drugs because they get their drugs tested and realise this isn't what I paid for at all. I'm Mm. not taking that. And so they throw it out. So... Um, yeah, the argument that it gives people a green light to use drugs, there's just no evidence to support that. Yeah. It's quite the opposite. So yeah. by seeing, um, and, and we talked about it before, instead of addiction, calling it dependence, if the governing bodies start to see it as a dependence issue as opposed to like I'm just a drug addict, because um, we all have dependence uh, issues, like f- depending on what you consider to be healthy and what unhealthy, like a phone addiction or dependence can be just as bad as yeah. a drug addiction. And we, we just using these as escapes, yeah. really, to escape our problems and our issues. So uh, is it that the governing bodies aren't seeing that as the issue? They're seeing it as, no, these guys are just losers who have, have done a bad thing. Well, I, th- I think... I think when we, we're kind of moving in that direction. So oftentimes in Australia, when these issues are talked about in the media, a politician will say, you know, we're treating this as a, as a health issue, mm-hmm. not as a criminal issue. Yeah. So that the rhetoric's there, but on the ground, it's still treated as a criminal issue. Mm. So I think it's going to take a while for Australia to move. You know, again, the ACT has um, you know, decriminalised all, all illegal drugs. So they're trying to, to move it into being a health issue. Yeah. But if we're just saying it's a health issue, but we're still arresting people for, for personal use, yeah. then we're saying one thing when we're doing well, another. you tell yeah. some of these older generation people, like you tell my parents to try and stop having a wine every night, like that's not going to happen. Like, right. And trying to remove these sorts of um, stigmas. stigmas and of ideas that that wine is fine, but the other stuff isn't. Um, or like I said, phone or Netflix or fucking... Fitness and yeah. anything that you becomes becomes that escape. Like we're just using whatever we can to escape it, and yeah. some people's addictions are more unhealthy than others. And, and a lot of um, a lot of that stigma. So when you're talking about your folks, for example, drinking alcohol, mm. they're probably completely unaware that alcohol is carcinogenic, causes mm. cancer. Mm. Um, and the cancer councils only in the last few years started to try to get that message out. In the past, they realised Australians drink too much. There's no point trying to push that message out. It's not going to lead to any changes in drinking. Mm. They're aware now that they're that that you know this is the next thing that they need to be working on. Um, but but because it's people's 
personal drug of choice already. Mm. They've, they've, you know, they. I guess a lot of a lot of the communication that occurs in society is looking at um, scapegoating other drugs that yeah. aren't alcohol and protecting us to, to think that alcohol oh, is it's okay. It's the safe one. So, so the you know when you do see stories about alcohol, it's it's young people. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it's people with alcohol problems mm. in, in rural communities, for example. But yeah. when you go to if you go to Royal Perth Hospital on a Friday night, it's your everyday average Aussie that's in there. It's just had a big night out. They've tripped over, yeah. um, fallen, got into a fight, whatever. But that's the main presentation. It's not methamphetamine. Like yeah. you read the paper, you think. As you were just talking about, you know, meth capital here, meth capital there. Every yeah. every six months, the media fight fist over cuff over which which capital in Australia is the new meth capital. Yeah, it's because the meth Olympics. It, yeah, the meth Olympics. <laughs> it, it sells it sells newspapers. It's a great story that that attracts a, you know um, a, a lot of the public's attention. Yeah, but in doing so. We, we're kind of not talking about what the real issue is, which is Friday night at Royal Perth Hospital. People yeah. full of, uh, you know, the hospital's full of people that have pissed and fallen over. Yeah. Now, is um, that because of lobbying and, and is that what it is? Yeah, well, the alcohol industry has lots of money, like the tobacco industry, the vaping industry. All, all of these industries have a, have a big influence over government. They, they do have um, enough money to be able to set up a meeting with a politician if they need to. Mm. Um, and... You know, it's in the vested interest of the alcohol companies to keep the focus on these other drugs like methamphetamine, mm. because when you look at the actual evidence, so so that 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 meth capital story that comes up every six months, it's coming from a report from the Australian Crime and Intelligence Commission. They do wastewater testing, mm. and they publish their results every six months, and that's what this story is based on. Yeah, but. They're only testing for some drugs, like they're not testing for cannabis, for example. Like yeah. often it'll say, you know, mm. that, that methamphetamine is, is the, the most used drug in Australia. It's simply not. Cannabis yeah. is. Yeah. Um, they're not testing for prescription medications. They're not testing for alcohol. Yeah. Because th th essentially what, what that's set up to do is to create a lot of media interest to continue this narrative that there's a drug problem in Australia and we need to spend lots of money on law enforcement to right. fix that problem. Right, mm. and it could be a positive if they're testing our wastewater. Maybe people in Perth are deciding to flush their drugs. Exactly, that's just it. We, we <laughs> don't know if, yeah. if, it, if, it, if there's a high reading. Is that just because someone flushed a couple of pounds of meth? We yeah. don't know whether it's come out of a person's body, body or they've just flushed it. Yeah, I would like to think Perth are responsible drug users. <laughs> we, we say no, and we tip it down the toilet. Um, I'll just get you to turn that mic towards you, not you, just the mic towards you. Yeah, there you go, perfect. Um, Sorry, that's just been bugging me. Yeah. <laughs> so the that the um, the methamphetamine story is, and it's because they're just not testing anything else, and that that's the like the sparkly, shiny. That's where our attention goes. Yeah, and would they be testing cocaine levels as well? Because they they have in the past, but it's interesting because yeah, it tends to show that that you know that this high high. High amounts of methamphetamine in the wastewater, but mm. when you actually survey people, cocaine's the most used drug in Australia, yeah. mm. um, followed very closely by ecstasy. Yeah. But the way people use cocaine and ecstasy are quite different. They, they're not using it every day, whereas a lot of people that use methamphetamine are using it on a daily basis. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah just, it's just so common now, cocaine. Like when I when I was younger, that's even if it is. Well, yeah, that's right. And but when I was younger, that was just it was there, but it was. It wasn't used too much. Or Pills, maybe it's because you're younger, you can't afford it. Yeah, and when you yeah, start yeah. Making potentially, more money. potentially, but even the older 
crew they weren't using it and uh, yeah so I just, I'm has just seeing it now it's like the yeah. younger people are fucking like it's everywhere so something teenagers. has definitely changed it, it used to be that ecstasy was yeah, the number one drug that people would use yeah um and it's over time it's, that's come down slightly and cocaine's continued to go up so mm. something has been changing over time with with um you know, the, the prevalence of cocaine, yeah. it has increased. But because people are using these drugs differently and there's different patterns of use, um, so, you know, you might find more of one drug in a wastewater, but but that that could be that just there's one person in your town that uses a shitload of drugs. Yeah. You can't extrapolate yeah. to the Australian population based on that finding. And I guess it would depend on timings as well. If there's just been a big festival with 40,000 people have gone to, <laughs> then the wastewater is going to have a different um, thing. Absolutely. It? Yeah. Mine's gone like... Oh, there we go. What was yeah. that? It was a truck outside. Oh. Jeez. <laughs> because yeah. mine just went like almost static white noise. Yeah, truck. Oh, that's what it is? Yeah, outside. Yeah. <laughs> um, is, <laughs> bit is of paranoia. Yeah. <laughs> is, is there a um, <laughs> scientifically backed proven uh, study that shows which drug does do the minimal harm? Or which recreational drug is minimally harmed? Or is it just Ooh, dependent yeah. on different brains, different bodies? Yeah, there's how many ways is there to skin a cat? So yeah. there, there, is, there are lots of studies um, that have looked at ranking drugs. Yeah. And it depends on how you set up the parameters to do it. In fact, I get my first year students to do this for their assignment. Can we do a drugs? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think this semester um, they looked at alcohol, methamphetamine, LSD and MDMA. Okay. And... Um, to, 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 make them, to make you think about this a, a little bit more, the parameters I set up are you need to consider the drugs in their pure pharmacological form. So as, as some people have difficulty sort of getting, wrapping their heads around this. So imagine, uh, imagine a, a, a not perfect world, it's not quite the right term, but imagine a world where we lived where you could just pick up any of those four drugs from the pharmacy. It, it would be labelled. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's labelled, you know how much is in it. Yeah. Um, and so you, you can make far better informed decisions about your use. So yes. comparing those drugs and what the students almost always will find is that alcohol is the most harmful. Yeah. And in this case... Um, probably LSD would be ranked the least harmful because yeah. it has the least potential for overdose. There's, there's no recorded death from overdose from LSD worldwide. And from you know, a toxicity perspective, in terms of long-term effects, um, there, there's been no long-term harms, physiological harm shown from LSD, whereas alcohol, we were just talking about cancer yeah. um, and various other conditions that, that alcohol can Domestic violence. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I guess alcohol is the one thing that loosens your inhibitions, so you're more likely to overdose on something else because you, you want to go take something and because you've been drinking, mm. you don't take it responsibly. Absolutely. Yeah. Alcohol is the gateway drug. People yeah. say it's cannabis. It's not cannabis, it's alcohol yeah. because you know, Sober Steve makes smart decisions but mm. piss Steve doesn't. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, for sure. I've always believed that. Is there um, – now, I don't know if anything exists, but you would, you, you would use more scientific equipment um, to measure your body's uh, overall health levels. Let's say, like, if I was to take MDMA on a weekend, is there anything – Allegedly. That, allegedly, <laughs> you could use to show, oh, no, his, his HTP levels or his serotonin levels are oh, back yeah. to normal. Is there something that can, like – gauge your health as you go along mm. that would be the best invention of all time if you could go oh no my levels are fine i can have a drink my body's got rid of it 
or it could be like, oh man, like I'm 80%, my, my liver's fucked, I'm not going to drink this weekend because you're just doing it off feel. Yeah. Is there anything that exists like that? <laughs> There's not really like a single test that, yeah. that can be used that way. And, but th- there are ways of measuring it. It's difficult. Things like serotonin are dif- difficult to measure because yeah. it's in your central nervous system, not in your blood. So mm. you have to extract it from the central nervous well, system. How do you so do that? Yeah. Spinal well, fluid. Really? Oh, that's. So, 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 oh, is this a rumour, a myth, where we only have a certain amount of spinal fluid and once it's out, you lose it? Oh, or is that one of those myths? It sounds like a myth. I'm, yeah. I haven't actually come across that one, but right. that does... Because I've the, heard the myth body. that drug use causes, like methamphetamine use or MDMA use, makes your spinal fluid dry up or something. <laughs> and it's... Is this just an old wife's tale? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an old pipe's tale? <laughs> <laughs> Well, well it, it's, it's a common myth. It's like, you know, um, substances cause brain damage, and absolutely some do. Things like alcohol can cause brain damage, um, LSD not so much. But, um, you know, the, the, the brain is also plastic. And mm. so even people with heavy methamphetamine use, um, they do recover. Their brains do recover. That's because so interesting. Our brains are plastic. They regenerate. And likewise with the, the spinal fluid, I yeah. would assume that our, our body would reproduce Just it. Bodies of, our, our human bodies are very good at reproducing those things that get right. used up and making right. more of them. Well, that's good to know. And what about things like, so when you come to lesser drugs, like weed, for example... Is I that a lesser y- drug? This is what I'm asking because is it a lesser drug? Because I've recently all but given up um, having uh, smoking weed. Um, it's a thing that I might dabble in from time to time around a campfire with some mates or whatever. But I was I was probably using it in a bad way, using it to get to sleep and using it to deal with fucking whatever I was going through. Um, but it was also very uh, noticeable the difference in motivation I had. After I stop using it, how much more efficient I am, uh, my mental clarity. So there must be some negatives to having weed. I know there's benefits and there's uh, dealing with trauma and sleep apnea and all that sort of stuff, or sleep um, uh, traumas and stuff like that. So uh, what is the pros and cons, or is that with everything? Well, I'd say like everything, everything in moderation. So Mm. anything can be harmful if if you're consuming too much of it. Water is too harmful. You can drown if you drink too much water. So. Caused um, by MDMA use. <laughs> but, but, you know, that, that's an extreme example to highlight this point that, that everything in moderation is probably fine. And mm. so when, you, when you're talking about that particular way that you're using cannabis, like the, the function of it, it, it's not so much about, you know, having an intention of um, enjoying this particular environment or, mm. or, you know, there's various reasons people use cannabis. But if you're using it to sleep, and you're using it to sort of turn off the de-stress, then it's that escapism that we were yes. talking about earlier. Yes, yes. So to, to me, it's not so much whether a drug's good or bad, it's about the function of the person's drug use. Mm. And is that function starting to become problematic? Yeah. And, and with cannabis, likewise, I think a lot of people do downplay it as a relatively safe drug, and, and mostly it is. I mean, you can't overdose on it, mm-hmm. but if you smoke it every day um, fairly heavily and you stop smoking, you will experience a withdrawal syndrome and it's mm-hmm. not particularly pleasant. You can't sleep. Mm. You start getting the sweats. You know, you need a cold shower. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah, there's, there's definitely people that develop problems with cannabis. One, one in ten people become dependent on cannabis. Yeah, mm. well, I felt like I had become dependent on it just to feel good at night. Not mm. during the day. I was able to occupy myself with distractions and work and whatnot. But uh, at night, uh, it would be smoking a joint uh, to go to sleep or to, to chill out and watch TV. I couldn't even watch TV without um, 
haven't it? So it's been about six. That's because TV sucks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. But it's been about six to eight months since I've really been smoking heavily, and um, I think I've uh, I had one smoke over in Europe um, since, like as for a fun night, and that's about it. Uh, it's just I found it far more beneficial not using it. Same with alcohol. I function better without alcohol. But if you're um, using it to help you sleep, would that not be considered being beneficial? Like, yeah, who's to say that's a bad thing? Like, mm. Or is that because it becomes a dependent habit of something we should be able to do naturally? Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, ideally, uh, yeah, ideally people fall asleep naturally, but we know, particularly in current society, there's mm. a lot of insomnia. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if you're going to use something to treat insomnia, I'd say cannabis is one of mm. the, the safer things to be treating it with. Like benzodiazepines cause serious physiological dependence and you get a rebound effect. Mm. So if you start taking temazepam, to, to address your sleep after a couple of weeks it stops working right. you double the dose mm. and you can see where that's going real quick yeah. now, and, my, and my only issue with that would be you're using something to mask the symptoms of, of you know not being able to sleep but then there'd be a root cause causing you to have insomnia so then if you're just using that to mask it and help go to, you won't address the actual yeah. root cause so I'm, I, I recognise that it'd probably help in the short term to go right I, I still need to be getting sleep but then you're not addressing it you might go fuck well I don't need it anymore because yeah. I can just smoke a joint yeah, yeah. And, and it's probably stress or something else that's yeah. the root cause yeah. and so it'd be better to address the stress yes. yeah. rather than be treating the symptoms that are popping up afterwards. like everything yeah. yeah yeah, and it's the same with alcohol I mean a lot of people it, you know enjoy a couple of glasses of wine to de-stress mm-hmm. and they believe that it helps them get to sleep the mm. evidence shows that alcohol is not great for, for inducing sleep it actually disrupts sleep yeah. but people believe it's helping their sleep and they, they feel the effects of the alcohol they feel the de-stress yeah. and so they get into a routine of doing that every night would you be able to physically test when they go i feel like i've slept better but you could actually test their levels of sleep and show actually well no yeah Yeah. but if the placebo check the rem sleep if your placebo effect was correct and you felt like you'd had a better sleep wouldn't that force your body to go into having that better sleep does that make sense like if i'm spending less time in rem or whatever the deep sleep is but i feel like i've done that does my brain and my body work just as well no, 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 okay. no. So if you haven't had REM, if you haven't had REM sleep, then um, there are measures that you'll perform worse on, right. even if you think you've had that sleep. Okay. And actually, cannabis is a good example. Like I often use alcohol as the example with with sleep, but but cannabis disrupts sleep as well. Mm. So you notice yes. when you're smoking heavily, no dreams. Yeah, yeah. Um, you just kind of wake up in the morning and you feel refreshed, like you've you've had some you've had some sleep. And if you sometimes you might remember bits and pieces of a dream because mm. you are still dreaming it's just that you can't remember them mm. but when you look at people's sleep patterns that, that, that there are differences in the amount of REM sleep that's occurring when people are using cannabis and like when you stop using you'll get flooded with vivid dreams and that, that can be disruptive for some people like they possibly even call it a withdrawal sy- symptom that they're experiencing you know they're having trouble sleeping now because when they do fall asleep it's so vivid and so full-on it wakes them up from it afterwards yeah um so, so, that, so they think dreaming is a withdrawal symptom but it's just natural is that right yeah it's, it's your body sort of resetting itself right. it, because you've, you've kind of turned off all of the dreaming and so you stop the cannabis now mm. and all it's like the, the dreaming gets turned on at, at 10 volume 11 now right. until it dials back to normal and your wow. body moves back into i must be in constant withdrawals <laughs> <laughs> I, I have like five dreams every single night i wake up from all my dreams all the time well, and you can can you remember your yeah. dreams? Yeah, heaps. See, yeah. I I, very, I struggle to remember my dreams. Like yeah. I, I can if I was to instantly think about it, and write, like, it, down, then write right. it down. I could probably get. Yeah, that's what it was. But next morning, wake up. If someone, if my dad said, "What did you dream about?" 
Fuck no. Yeah. Or it makes a lot of remember. sense at yeah. the time, but when you start verbalizing, you're like, fuck, that makes no sense no, makes at no all. Sense. What's, uh, well, I, I was going to say, like, the, the myth is that cannabis isn't a dependency drug, but you just said one in, one 10. in 10. So that's, that's an interesting myth. To now, bust. It, 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 that's the, the question I'd ask around that. Is it actually like a. Uh, a scientific actual dependence addiction to the, or is it they are just dependent on the feeling that it, they get from it, not necessarily the actual drug? What you mean, like using cannabis, the one in 10 that are dependent on it? Yeah. They is have it, to have it to function? Or No, I don't know. Are they dependent on the feeling that they get or are they actually dependent on depends, the drug? Surely that depends on the definition of dependency, yeah. right? Yeah. I'd say it's different levels of dependence where... Mm. If you stop using cannabis um, and you're not experiencing physiological withdrawal, but you're still missing the feeling of it, like yep. you're craving and you'd like that back, that's yeah. a lower level of dependence than, mm. say, if you ceased using and you're getting physiological withdrawal sim- sim- symptoms yeah. on top of that. Mm. Okay. What, um, what, is there any link between dreams and um, your field? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yes and no, in that I, I think um, I, I think drugs, particularly MDMA, which which might seem strange, you might have been thinking mushrooms was the one that mm. I'll talk about, but actually with, with MDMA, um, it seems like when people are under the influence of it in the context of, of clinical work, um, they're able to to have like a waking dream, mm. and it's like the it's it's similar to a normal dream in that it's this unconscious material that's flooding into the consciousness, mm-hmm. and the person's trying to make sense of it. You know, they sort of create a story around what's going on, and for some people, it impacts their dreaming for the next few nights afterwards. So negatively or positively. A bit like they've just stopped using cannabis. They're getting right. really vivid dreams. Maybe the nightmares from PTSD aren't there anymore, but okay. instead they're getting these really wacky dreams and mm. trying to make sense of why they're suddenly getting these weird dreams and what it means. Um, whereas with with mushrooms, it really feels like there's an external entity that's giving you this information mm-hmm. and it's coming in at you. With MDMA, it's actually you. You're, you're providing the story. It's like your dream. You know, it's your dream. You're yeah. in the dream. So, so you're part of that experience. Yeah. And so I actually think there's more overlap with MDMA than psilocybin just because of the nature of the experience and the direct, you know, the direct sort of links that we've already seen. And have you found that the MDMA-based uh, dreams or whatever it is, do they have meaning or is it just utter rubbish? Like what is, is there any science? Because dreams are the, one of the most misunderstood things that we yeah. have. And the amount of dreams I have where six months, a year, three years later, I'm like, I know I've dreamt this. I've already had this. Yeah. 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 So is there any science back stuff? This might just be a, a passion field of yours because I don't know how much it relates to addiction, but 
What's your learnings on that? Because it fucking blows my the, mind. You're right. There's, there's so many different explanations of what it all means. I, I tend to come from a sort of neurological perspective. Mm. So when, when you're in an REM, when you're in that REM state, there's parts of your brain that are firing randomly that, that fire up neural networks that are memories. And then your prefrontal lobes trying to make sense of those memories and so it starts to create a bit of a story. Mm. So for, for me, that the meaning that are in the dreams is it's, it's usually stuff that's happened recently because it's activating those recent memories and helping consolidate those memories, putting them from short-term memory to long-term memory. Mm-hmm. And then what's more useful, you know, in terms of working with someone in the context of psychotherapy is not so much the content of the dream what the feeling was, what the emotion was in the dream, because um, that's likely to be part of a, a, a broader pattern of, of sort of feelings that they've been talking about in therapy. Mm. And during, you know, if they've been keeping a dream journal, that, that feeling will be a theme in the dream journal as well. Right. So it's more mm. about um, how the person's personality is being activated while they're asleep, i.e. What, what, how they're feeling when these various things are happening to mm. them mm. that's more useful than the actual content of the dream. Mm, so interesting and do you subscribe to the fact that like a bear means you know there's money issues or a snake someone's stabbing you in the back not at all not at all (laughs) (laughs) um you mentioned mushrooms before and i'm interested in that because we're talking about root cause of issues and um, masking symptoms whereas uh like a drug like uh, alcohol or weed can be masking symptoms uh as far as i've been told Mushrooms seem to get to the root cause and try and help you figure out what the root cause is. So, Do the what, mushrooms get there or do they... Well, yeah, do they find something within yourself? Uh, I'm, I'm very interested to know uh, your, your ideas on sort of... Yeah, that's that sort of area. I think mushrooms can be actually used in the same way that alcohol is used. Not very effectively. Typically, people don't you know stick 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 with that for very long because it doesn't work that well. But you can use it as an escapism. And I've seen... Seen one fellow that that blew blew my mind. Um, it's the first time I've seen somebody that would meet diagnostic criteria for a dimethyltryptamine use disorder. So they had, they were using really? they were using DMT daily. Wow, on multiple occasions a day, and had developed like a relationship with that world. Wow, out there that was that was I'd say pathological, wow. um, con- concerning. concerning. But is it is it real, or is it you know that's a million dollar question yeah um so obviously this person would believe that where they were going was real but it was it was like we were talking about with alcohol it was an escapism so they'd move from methamphetamine to dmt which is probably a great thing far better to be smoking some dmt than Mm -hmm. than smoking methamphetamine daily but the, the use of dmt was an escapism again it's sort of not addressing what the root cause was but Mm. rather just masking those symptoms and did they believe that they had like another life in the dmt realm or is it just more like i'm just going there each time to get rid of whatever's happening in this i only only spent a couple of hours with this person and i'm I'm not sure but i i I think it was that they were just going to that place i don't think a couple um, hours for you a lifetime for him (laughs) (laughs) but uh that reminds me of a story i heard have you watched any youtube series the tales of the trip Oh, I might have. Is this the comedians? Uh, yeah, like all celebrities yeah, talk great, about yeah. it. One of the guys had a relationship with somebody in the DMT world and she, he thought he was crazy. And then the other guy was on the trip and he's like, hey, there's a lady here that reckons she knows you <laughs> and wants to know where you've been. That sort of shit is like, how do you quantify that? Yeah, because like, now you... Two individuals, and you, same, same person they see. Yeah. Commenting that he... And you alluded to it earlier when you were talking about the fact that 
it feels like someone's giving you the information yeah. as opposed to it's coming from within. So, uh, <laughs> what is that? Yeah. <laughs> Explain it. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have answers. Like I say, that's the million dollar question. What, what, you know, there's lots of explanations. So, I guess on either side of the equation is, um, you know, one end of the spectrum is that it's completely all of you and you're just experiencing yourself as a, as it say, like a third person or mm. you're experiencing yourself in a different way in the same way that we think when people are hearing voices, when people with schizophrenia are hearing mm. voices, what they're actually hearing is their own voice, uh. but they're misinterpreting that to be somebody else's voice and not mm. the, like their own. You know, like we all have a little voice in our head. Not yeah. all. <laughs> Apparently 50% of people don't have an internal monologue. That blows my mind, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, but so these people might be like, this is my internal monologue, but they think it's someone else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so it might be somebody, that, like you say, that doesn't actually have an internal monologue, but wow. that their internal monologue's been confused with another person's voice. Wow. So, you know, the, 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 the brain and the subjective experience we have, it's so complicated. It, it, that could be an explanation is we just, it's just sh- um, disrupting our perception of ourselves, and mm. so we're experiencing ourselves in a different way all the way through to you're accessing another dimension and mm. there are different beings from a different dimension that you're then interacting with there in that mm. other space so mm. and there's lots of i guess there's lots of spots in between, in between. there but we we, we, we don't know we, we don't so know crazy. what's happening it's interesting that there's common similarities between and uh, i think you potentially touched on this last time and like you know it's a it's a connect collective consciousness thing where we all experience the same sort of thing so we might have that same um, our the minds are drawn to the, yeah. Ideas. Our minds are drawn to the same idea of something, but it is very when it's very specific. It seems very odd and very strange, and it does buy into that ethereal realm, like different dimensional sort of aspect. Mm. But yeah, I'm very interested, uh, specifically because uh, you know we, we had someone on yesterday who's uh, a bit more on the spiritual path side of things, and they suggested that you know having a mushroom trip can be this same as almost having 30 therapy sessions and i'm interested in your thoughts on that and why like she's talking it from a spiritual point of view but potentially the yeah. scientific, I remember last scientific time way that we you discussed like the mountain um yeah gateway aspect where you're like well why climb the mountain if you can get an elevator lift there but yeah yeah so we don't really like i, I kind of a, do subscribe to that idea that there's multiple hours of psychotherapy you know whether it's 30 sessions or whatever in, in one experience i i do think th- the reason for that is when we're looking at people with depression for example they're getting so much better after a single administration of psilocybin that it it looks like that they've, it looks like they've just had 30 sessions mm. in a single set they've gotten so much better but we don't know why people are getting better we don't actually know how this treatment works wow. mm. so it might be that it's creating psychological flexibility that some of these difficult things you've got to try and get your head around while you're having the experience forces your mind to become a bit more flexible mm-hmm. and we know that psychological rigidity the opposite of flexibility is associated with depression obsessive compulsive disorder and a bunch of other conditions because you can't change your thinking or you're yeah, stuck you're, you're in that pattern really stuck in that pattern we call that being italian where i'm from <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and a similar similar but slightly different explanation is that it's turning off the default mode network in the brain and allowing sort of new pathways to be laid down and the analogy i think michael Pollan first used this one it's a bit like a ski field yeah. where you've got all the people that have been skiing down the field it creates mm. 
it's mm. all of those sort of ruts where you can people have run. The, this mushroom experience then is like an avalanche that comes down and puts fresh snow, fresh powder on all of those mm. tracks, and now mm. you can lay down new tracks after. So that. interesting, and it's so funny because is this backed by any science or any brain scans, or is this just what we're hypothesizing is happening? It's it's hypothesizing based on empirical information, so based on things like brain scans. But there's there's um, you know, this, this field has really exploded in the past few years and consequently, this is good. You've got, um, you know, sort of fundamentalist people in one camp and mm. you've got real critics in the other and the critics have been sort of tearing down some of these explanations saying that it's not based on science, this is just a hypothesis, which is fine, but I think sometimes the, some, some of the folks working in this space are presenting it more as a fact than right. as a hypothesis. Yeah. Right, but it should be presented as a hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah, and I, uh, I mean, with the the um, the words you just use, then default default mode network. I've heard that come up before. What are we? What's that as an explanation for listeners? So there's, a, it's like a network in the brain connecting different parts of your brain together that allow you to to sort of focus, be on task. Um, with, this, with this particular network, the default mode network, it's particularly associated with um, rumination, autobiographical rumination. So thinking about yourself and something that you've done okay. earlier this morning that's really bugging you, right. your default mode network's really activated then. Okay. And so if you turn off the default mode network, um, what it, the, the brain starts to crosstalk. So there's all of this random firing that's occurring in the brain. So And, and networks in the brain are talking that wouldn't normally talk. Yeah. Now, if our default mode network was turned off all the time like that, we wouldn't even be able to have this conversation Correct. because we'd yeah. be so busy staring at you know this line in the desk or yeah. whatever it else was that, that we wouldn't actually be able to, to function as humans. Yeah. So... Having you know overactive default mode network is seen in OCD depression. We know that we we do know that psilocybin tends to dial down the default mode network, yep. and so hence there's the explanation. Maybe this is the mechanism of of, um, of change. Yeah, and you get you almost get out of your own way for a little bit and stop thinking about whatever the issue was. I'm so fucking I can't believe this person did this to me, and I, and I shouldn't have done this, and then that. Dials that down so your brain can actually go. Yeah, you know, some different and, thoughts. And another let some uh, stuff another through. theory that's kind of bolted onto that default mode network theory is um, the, the reduced belief system theory. So by by turning off the default mode network, you're able to um, th those core beliefs you have about who you are, the world, other people loosen, and mm. you're able to see your situation in a different light, even for a small period of time. Yeah. And another explanation is maybe it's not even the, the psilocybin experience itself, but rather it causes neuroplasticity. And so if you're changing your routine in the days afterwards, mm -hmm. and so you start exercising, you start mm. eating healthier, all of that starts wiring those newer brain networks that maybe weren't firing up because you fell into depression. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it may actually not be the experience itself. It may be the neuroplasticity that occurs in the week oh, afterwards. Wow. We really don't know. And is there things that you can do without mushrooms to increase your neuroplasticity? You see all these apps and stuff. I, I heard like just brushing your teeth with your opposite hand, yep. taking a different way to work. Wow. Just something that's going to... Really? Yeah, to zoom. And, and that's what I would recommend. All of the things that don't cost anything. Like <laughs> driving to work a different way doesn't cost you a cent. It depends where, how fast you drive. <laughs> so there's always but, yes. other ways than just taking a drive. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, or, or using an app. Like, they're, they're, you're right. There's so many apps out there that are claiming to increase neuroplasticity, and they may yeah. well do, but the, you know, they, they haven't been researched to demonstrate that. And people can make these sorts of claims to sell an app. Yeah. But realistically, it's doing a Sudoku puzzle. It, it's right. going for a drive a different way. It's um, brushing your teeth, eating your yeah. meal back to front. Doing all of these yeah. things is increasing neuroplasticity. Is there a link? I don't, I don't know if this is your field or not. Is there a link between a physical change to increase neuroplasticity or a mental change to like let's say me brushing my teeth opposite hands is that going to have a greater uh, effect than me trying a sudoku puzzle for my different neuroplasticity well, it, it will have it'll have different impacts on different networks so right. if you're doing a sudoku puzzle and that's you've never done sudoku before it's forcing you to think about numbers in a different way right and so that number part of the brain is changing as you're doing the puzzle yeah. likewise if you're a right if you're a really dominant right-handed person like me and you start brushing your teeth with your left hand yeah. it's changing parts of the motor coordination um, parts of the brain and so that that will be useful if, if I do jiu-jitsu for example and yeah. I need to be doing things in both ways yeah. or you know, there's other sports where you've got to be ambidextrous yeah. that brushing your teeth <laughs> well shit sorry old time <laughs> we're going with this ambidextrous hand yeah yeah yeah, well. uh, yeah, yeah. And, and likewise with the with the sudoku if you're wanting to enhance your skills in um, you know being able to deal with numbers yeah. more generally then that's, that's probably a task that would make more sense. So it's really about choosing the task that best aligns with where I'm trying to get my performance yeah. enhancement. Mm. That's why I like doing escape rooms because yeah. it forces my brain to think differently to how I'd normally think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And oh. I love watching – there's a new Korean movie, uh, Netflix series called Devil's Plan. Oh. It's all like escape room challenges, but it's like team – It's amazing. I've only – well, I say I can't watch uh, the overdub stuff or the – Oh, you just, I just put the subtitle on. Right? Yeah, that's probably better. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, so I'm interested. So uh, I'm one of these people that try things myself, do it myself. So I like carnivore diet. I did. I tried that one. You know, vegan, vegetarian, uh, all sorts of things. You know, fucking meditating. I try everything myself. I've never. I've had mushrooms before. I've had them for fun, but I've never had them for growth or yeah. for for trauma healing or whatever so this weekend i am having uh, an experience once i where when and who with but i am and i'm getting guided through it i'm interested more specifically in one do you th- i want to know the science behind what's going to help me in, in ways and I, I know you said before that potentially you can't really know. tell yeah but um how important is my mindset prior going to be because that seems to be and a, a defining factor because obviously going into the, the mushrooms I've had in Bali, for example, fun, drinking, have you know, whatever, it's going to be a very different experience that I'm going to have on the weekend. Yeah, so the mindset is incredibly important. And so when we're doing psychedelic therapy versus when you're just taking mushrooms for fun, um, there's, there's, a, there's a period of preparation that occurs before the yep. experience and then there's integration that occurs afterwards. So mm-hmm. the preparation is really about setting up that mindset to make sure the person's in the, the, the best mindset possible to um, have a mystical experience. It's usually what we're trying to do in clinical settings yep. is, is we, we prepare the person and then we set up the room and the environment on the day. Likewise, when you're having a mushroom experience, if you're mm. doing it um, out in the bush somewhere and you're doing it in a group and someone's facilitating that, they'll be trying to create an environment that's most likely um, to produce that mystical experience for the, for the people that are participating in mm. the event. But with, with, M, with the MDMA, um, we, we've worked with people who 
have used MDMA before and everyone that's used MDMA before says that what they took in the clinic was, well, it's not like the MDMA they know. It. There's nothing, nothing like it. Mm-hmm. And it's the same drug. It's just that the, the mindset's different and the environment it's being used in is or different. Or it might, might not be the same drug. But what's behind that? Why is the mindset? Why, why is that a, di- a differing uh, factor? Why does that change yeah, the experience? And, and it changes with different drugs. So... Even mindset is important with alcohol. If, if you believe that a particular type of tequila makes people aggressive and angry mm. and you drink that tequila, you'll mm. probably get aggressive and angry. Right. Um, so, so that expect, Why? Well, it's the expectation of what's going to happen leads yeah. results in the subjective experience. So when we're having any drug experience, it's an interaction between the pharmacology of the drug itself, mm. the setting, the person's mindset, mm. um, the set, sorry, and the setting that they're using it in the mm. environment. Look, another example with alcohol – um, drinking at a funeral versus drinking at a wedding, very different experience, same mm. drug. Mm. Yeah. Now, with, when you said clinical setting for mushrooms, I've always envisioned uh, clinics being like, we're going on a fucking sterile hospital bed, we're being like hooked yeah. up to stuff, doing shrooms. Is that not what it is? Would you set up a room like this yeah. and like sit down and do mushrooms and take notes or have it filmed? Mm. Yeah, we're, we're generally doing it in, in a hospital room. Right. So it is it is clinical in that respect, but there's no wires. Um, okay. The most sort of clinically clinically type things we do is blood pressure. So we check people's blood yeah. pressure before they dose. Um with, with both drugs, psilocybin and MDMA, we test, check their blood pressure a second time. With MDMA, it's to, to see if they can take the supplementary dose or not. Right. Um, with psilocybin, it's just part of that ongoing monitoring. And it's look, it's not ideal. When when somebody's having a mushroom experience, you don't really want to be trying to get their arm out, putting a yeah. um, putting the blood pressure machine on, yeah. making the noise and all of that stuff. But outside of that, it, the room's set up. Um, as much we can to make it feel like it's not a hospital room, that mm. it's feeling like it's an office somewhere with some healing crystals yeah. and some nice artwork that's um, you know that, that's that, that's non descriptive, so that people you know it's, so people it's like a Rochart test, yeah. The art. They can um, make up whatever it is for themselves. Yeah, we, we have a bed that people can sort of lie back on yeah. and um, and basically, you know, have eye shades on. They have tunes on yeah. through headphones. Yeah. There's a monitor in the room so the therapist can hear what, what the person's hearing as well. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, we, we're trying to get the balance as, as right we can between doing it in this clinical hospital environment where mm. we have to do it for safety reasons and understanding the impact that the environment has yeah, on the person's I couldn't think experience. of anything worse than being in a, a clinical setting. If you're on, the, the number one thing I want when I'm on mushrooms is to go out and be in nature. I don't. I have a drawing, or I want to lie down on the grass and feel nature, or be around nature. Yep. I don't want to be around man-made structures for whatever reason that be. So that's to, that's to quite test. common. And yeah. so in in a hospital environment. Like we, we can't take people outside, mm. but we can try to make the environment as you know, bringing outside things inside to like plants, for example, to yeah. try and reduce that discomfort yeah. as much as possible. Oh, I've found like I, I've never done trims just for fun, like to go and like yeah. uh, once in Bali, but any other time I've done it because I just want to look inwards for a bit. I just find myself closing my eyes and just going on a, a internal adventure yeah. there. What? What's yeah? What's going what's on? the is there a uh, method where people go? Okay, we want you to keep your eyes open and talk to us, or we want you to close your eyes and go inwards. Is there a right way? Yeah, for mushrooms, or is it a clinical way? What What's the advice? That's uh, yeah. It's well, something I think that there's, there's different ways that, that mushrooms have been used. So yeah. if you look at the traditional way mushrooms were used, say in Mexico, um, they were used in sort of a syncretic 
Christian type environment. Mm. So there would be, you know, some some pictures of Jesus and things oh, wow. around before you take the mushrooms. Um, people would be in a room together, so they'd be doing it in a communal environment. Multiple t- people taking mushrooms at the same time, and um, you know whether people go inwardly focused or not, it's kind of up to them so in that environment. Okay. Whereas in the sort of clinical world, yeah, we, we encourage people to close their eyes within 20 minutes. If yep. they haven't, most people spontaneously just close their eyes, stick on the music and, and lie back. But if they haven't, then we encourage them to do that. So wow. we, we are actually trying to get people in the clinical environment to shut their eyes and go inwards. Yeah. Because as you say, you know, once you shut your eyes, it, this, this kind of goes to the point I was saying about, you know, the inside versus the outside. Mm-hmm. I think once you've got the person comfortable enough that they can close their eyes and go inwards, it doesn't matter where whether you're out, um, you know, in a beautiful gorge somewhere yeah. or whether you're in a hospital room. Once, you go in, in, once you're internally focused, it doesn't really matter where you are yeah. because all that's relevant is what's happening yeah. in that moment. Yeah. For that mm. So I just, uh, it's funny, so the Mexicans had Jesus, the Italians have Super Mario. <laughs> <laughs> where, but, do they, um, where do they go, uh, do they have any references of psychedelics used in ancient, it's sort of like the Bible and um, some old texts and would, would you suggest that potentially they have influenced like religion itself? Yeah, this is, look, it's a Joe question Rogan that's theory. really up to, yeah, it's a question that's really up for debate. I think, um, if you interpret certain things in the Bible, you definitely interpret them to be psychedelically related. Even the idea, you know, I can't, won't get the quote quite right, but the kingdom of God is within you is kind of talking mm. about the entheogenic experience that you are understanding that you are God. Yeah. Um, I spoke about that yesterday. Yeah. But there, yeah. There's, uh, it, some people have suggested the burning bush could be mm. um, an acacia that's you know, DMT smoke. Um, there's lots of theories around different mushrooms that have been used in the past. And so... They would have been different, right? The strains would have been less potent than now or the same because well, it's nature? Just, just different, yeah. just di- different varieties. And depending on where you are in the world depends on what grows, you know, what grows locally. Mm. Probably, the, the, probably the theory I'm aware of that that's, I feel is probably most credible um, suggests that there was a sacrament that's referred to in the Bible. It's called manna. And it's referred to, it's only in the Old Testament. And so I can't think of the guy's name, but a scholar believed that that was some sort of a a psychedelic drug, maybe a psychedelic mushroom. And that over time, um, people would use the manna to to communicate directly with God. And then over time, sort of the way the church set up um, was, and and Judaism as well, um, set up so that, you know, you've got temple or church and there's Mm. a person in the church that, that becomes the mediator between God and the manna itself sort of somehow just disappeared from right. from use. Now what would uh, that maybe that would be when you go get your blood of Christ the thing they'll actually give you a mushroom so you could go communicate with <laughs> yeah. God and over time they took power away. <laughs> yeah, well, what interests me is how they came up with the recipe almost because you can't just get ayahuasca and just have it and it works. Like there's a process. That's how DMT, they, not yeah, mushrooms. Yeah, I know, but like how do they find these mushrooms? Not just the process is like where do that come from? Like you talk about like potentially ancient times, like where's yeah, like that? another one that really uh, that that blows my mind is that, and there's good evidence for this in ancient Greece, um, people would go to the Oracle where they would consume um, I can't remember what it was called, like what's what it's called in the the ancient text, but it's hypothesised to be um, an extract that takes ergot off rye um, because ergot. Um, contains LSA, so it's very similar to LSD. But if you eat the ergot, you die. 
Right. But the, the, the drugs that are psychedelic in the ergot are water-soluble, so if they dissolve it all in water and strain out the, the what's left, yeah. then they'll end up with the LSA in water without the toxins. Now, this who is, figured that <laughs> out? That's, and that's the question I'm asking. Like Through ancient times, we don't have science, we don't have... this is. You can't even do trial and error because you're going to get a lot of dead people. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and then and you're just going to have surely times. it's just rained and filtered through something, and someone's gone. Oh, when it rains, we're going to drink the water out. Yeah, of but this. what about like I and I use ayahuasca as an example, just because of how complicated the process is. It's not just like. <laughs> So you're that. suggesting there's divine intervention? Is there? Is there, well, and, and I'm not going to ask a scientist. Yeah, <laughs> divine intervention, but there has to be some sort of message to say. Well, I don't know. Yeah, but there's. We don't have the knowledge then to do. Like, like how did Italians know garlic and prawn <laughs> mix yeah, but so that's, well? That's, you know, like, that's spices and tastes and fucking. Yeah, but that. who would have thought I'm going to get this thing from but the ground gonna, and mix it with this thing from the ocean? Yeah, you know. Yeah, but you're not going to die <laughs> having that, and you're not trying to get a trip. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you have to get the, the right. Then. You have to get the process exactly, exactly right. right. Well, it's like the guy that accidentally um, the bicycle day guy, the Hoffman, guy that found yeah. LSD. That was a complete accident. It was a complete accident. Yeah. But, but like at least that one, you can step through and you can see how the accident occurred. And then because he was scientifically trained, you know, yeah. he went back and purposely ingested an, an amount. Like it was systematic <laughs> in the way that he, you know, the, the way that he identified that it was the LSD that was psychoactive. Yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, I tend to agree. I, I don't have an explanation, mm. but I tend to agree that it's fascinating that these whether it's ayahuasca or, you know, some sort of ergot formulation that's being used in ancient Greece, where yeah. did these people figure out yeah. that you could make the ergot so it doesn't kill people or that you could mix these two plants that both of them in isolation do absolutely nothing, yeah. but when you mix them together, um, cause yeah. significant oh. changes in consciousness. My own theory is that someone's accidentally done it the first time and then mother ayahuasca has gone, hey, share this. This is what happens when you go boom, boom, and that first verse has just gone like Herbalife and just shared it amongst everybody possible but um, I had a question about that is, <laughs> is mushroom, are mushrooms magic mushrooms naturally occurring everywhere in the world or just certain places of the world hmm. does every country have its own version I would say I'm going to say yes with the caveat that I know Alaska is not a country, right. but I don't think psilocybin mushrooms grow in, grow in Alaska. But in Canada, they do grow. North America, they mm. grow. South America, they, I think pretty much every continent apart from Antarctica has um, native right. psilocybin mushrooms. And I just went to Amsterdam, as I was talking before, after Edinburgh, um, and we had some truffles there. What's the difference between the tr a truffle and a magic mushroom? Mm. Really not not that much in terms of the ingredients. Mm. Um but essentially, the, the truffle is like a. a, a I mean, it was like nutty. It was almost like a nut. So, so mushrooms don't have roots. They have something called mycelium. And so, what you usually see when you're going out and about is no mushrooms, because the mycelium, which is actually the mushroom creature, if you like, the animal or the plant, is mm. is the the mycelium network that's under the ground. And then once a year, they fruit and they stick up little mushrooms with a fruiting body, they have spores on it, and those spores mm -hmm. go out to create new mycelium networks. And so um, the, the, truffles. the truffles are part of that mycelium network. Okay. So rather than being a fruiting body that, that you know opens up and spreads the spores out, mm. the truffles are something that the mycelium sort of... It's almost like they're, they're putting down some... 
um, some roots, if you like, mm-hmm. to, to extend their potential longevity. So if they're not able to fruit for the next few years, they've got the nutrition, nutrition, nutrients and everything they require to be able to continue. To continue so, it's, so it's just a different part of the mycelium. Yeah, right, yeah. That's so interesting. I didn't know that. I thought it was like something that grew on a side of a tree bark and they picked it off or something. So it's, right. the, it's, it's the same animal. It's just a different part of it. And it's just a really weird thing in in, um, in the Netherlands where they've banned the fruiting bodies, but they haven't banned the mycelium. Yeah, so, so strange. Yeah, I've, I had that. Uh, we had some, uh, my friend together and ended up going fully inward into the quantum realm. <laughs> <laughs> but I was trying to like use the mushrooms to heal my back. And I found every time I've had mushrooms, I have the same sort of thing. And I don't know if this is a common experience. You'd probably be able to tell me from research. Does it affect your stomach? I always feel like my stomach's really sick. Um, and my nervous system, my back, where I've had my back surgeries and my issues. And I don't know if that's the mushroom showing me, how hey, you need to fix this or work on this. Or if it's actually having an effect on my nervous system. Because right where I've had my herniated disc, it is almost like electrifying and extreme pain. So I don't know, is that a side effect or is that the mushroom showing me I need to fix something? I think there's two things going on there. What's happening with your gastric discomfort Mm. is partly mushroom material that that maybe your body doesn't like, but partly psilocybin itself, remembering that it works on serotonin and we have more serotonin in our our gut than we do in our brain. So it's interacting with the serotonin in there. So people often talk about butterflies in their stomach or nausea or just unpleasant feeling in the stomach. And so it could be any of those things. In terms of what you're talking about with your back... You know, there's this idea that the body keeps score, that the body has has like a memory that's separate from the central nervous system memory. And um, it seems like under the influence of mushrooms, your body remembers old like, oh, like it, old yeah. things and, and it fires up old old networks that haven't fired up for it's a long time. It's debilitating. Yeah. Right. Mm. So as an example, um, I've heard about people that have had teeth taken out and on mushrooms they've got like a phantom tooth pain it's wow. like the, their tooth's still there and it's hurting but there's no tooth there or um people that have had uh, you know respiratory problems and under mushrooms they start coughing get, you know get into a coughing oh. fit or something like that and there's no there's no rational reason for yeah. it it's, it's purely psychological wow that really that's that's super interesting to me because it and there would be no way to mitigate it right if your body's just doing it can you you can't yeah, we don't even know. Wh- we don't even really know why it's happening. So, li- so wow. we can't really control it until we understand what's happening. Wow. It's, it, it's definitely, it's definitely a thing. Yeah. But I don't know why it's a thing or, or, or how you know how that why it happens the yeah. way it does. I could barely walk. Like this was like intense. And every time I've had it, it's it's always flared up where but my back is. So. There is there is one thing that can happen in Australia in particular. Um, and, and this isn't, doesn't sound like it was the case at all for yeah. you, but for, with our local mushrooms, um, so psilocybe, subarangenosia, um, they tend to grow in wood chip. Yeah. And some of, some of them cause a paralysis, Ooh. which if you're tripping hard can mm. be quite <laughs> challenging, scary, scary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, when your body stops working. Yeah. And there's been, you know, there haven't been a lot of hospital admissions, <laughs> but there have been some people freaking out when all of a sudden their body stops working. And yeah. after a few hours, everything sort of comes mm. back. But knowing that that's a thing is, is helpful before it happens rather than trying to figure it out after yeah. like, while it's happening. Ed Sheeran's song. So where are we and at your legs don't work. In, in regards to using uh, mushrooms in Australia, uh, are we starting with microdosing? Is it becoming is microdosing a thing? Yeah, and I is heard it, it's the is research. It, is it becoming? It's not. Uh, is it? 
did I see something recently that is being used legally yeah. in, in some areas? Something got legalised with mushrooms recently. So um, psilocybin and MDMA have both been rescheduled as medicines in Australia. So they're okay. both still illegal drugs in Australia, but they can now be prescribed as a medicine by a psychiatrist that's got approval by the TGA. And it's a hell of a process to get that approval. I'm aware of one psychiatrist in Australia. Um, this law came into effect from the 1st of July and we're of one person that's been successful yeah. so far. That's a pretty huge step though because I remember last time you were on you were saying we were, we were so far away from it and it was like they weren't, you know, we tra- were aiming to have it help in medicine and for us to do that in a year and a half since you came on, I was thinking like that's fairly, fairly big yeah, step. Yeah, it, it's very unexpected. Um, I'm quoted, I was featured in a Four Corners story last year where I'm quoted as saying Australia will not be the first country in the world to regulate these as medicines. Clearly yeah. got that wrong. <laughs> I'll, I'm ha- and I'll wear that. Like, yeah. I'm happy to. That's to wear good. That You'd rather be wrong life. on that. Yeah. Um, but, but in the same vein, yeah, I think it is a positive step. And from a drug policy perspective, it's a really positive step that, that we would say that these are not just drugs. These can be used as medicines yeah. as well. And that's a world first. But the way this is going to roll out, I don't think it's really going to make any difference to the average person with depression or PTSD that wants to access these treatments. Yeah. Because, as I say, one person's been approved so far. So the TGA's um, mm-hmm. going to make it pretty tight. In, in restrictive in terms of who's going to be able to provide yeah. these treatments. When, when um, you know, if a clinic opens up in Perth, and I believe clinics will open up in Perth over the next over the next 12 months, yeah. um, there's one that's already offering MDMA therapy. Um, they haven't... They're, they're doing an open-label trial at the moment at the PAC Centre. How do we sign up? Uh, they've, <laughs> well, they've closed their trial, so you can't enrol in that anymore. But the reason they're doing this trial is so that they can start offering it as a prescription right. treatment um, once the trial's finished. But that treatment's going to cost about $25,000 per person. Wow. So... Wow. Yeah, so for it's, like it's, for a year or for like a one script or like... Well, this is MDMA therapy. So there's three MDMA sessions and, you know, maybe a total of 50 hours in psychotherapy okay. across three MDMA sessions plus preparation integration. Mm. And the cost is for the two psychologists plus a psychiatrist plus a facility, wow. you know, to... to your rent and everything else, it adds up really quickly. It's not the drug. The drug doesn't really cost much yeah. at all anymore. It's the cost of all of the the wraparound service you have to be able to do to be able to provide this treatment. Even to, to get approval by the TGA, you have to get approval from an institutional ethics committee. And so if you're not attached to a university or hospital and you're a psychiatrist wanting to get that, you'd have to go to a private provider and they might charge $4,000 mm. to review your treatment protocol. But it seems and it's like not subsidised at all by the sound of things. And it, well, it it's seems, so sad. It seems like it could be subsidised if they did similar to what Portugal have done and redirect that money that we're putting into prison systems and mm. put that into the actual rehabilitation programs itself. Well, I think the way it will start to be... Um, uh, you know, like co-funded in Australia is through health insurance providers. So mm. wow. health, health, all, all you have to demonstrate is the economic benefit. So yes, it costs $25,000, but if that health insurance provider is going to save $50,000 mm. over the person's life by, by, by doing that 25000 outlay, mm. then they see that as a benefit. So they would, they would like their patients to, to go through the treatment, they're happy to fund it because it's going to have long-term savings. And they have a lot of... Do they have a lot of power, the health indus- uh, the insurance agencies? Lobbying? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually don't know. Because they've got a lot of money. Yeah, they think they've, got, they've got a lot of money. I'm not, I'm not sure how pow- powerful they are as a lobby. And... I have to be honest. I haven't worked with that many health insurance mm. th- that many health insurance companies. There's one based in uh, I think they're based in Perth, but they might just be a, they might be a, 
based in Sydney or Melbourne, um, HIF in particular have expressed a keen interest in in looking at how they might be involved in this because they see that they will get new members if they cover this therapy yeah. uh, for people that you know, obviously want the therapy um, covered. Yeah. And so, yeah, for them it's that they want to be the first to do it so that they can generate a whole lot of business. Yeah, they'll way. get in before everybody else. It feels like a smart move. If, they can, if they've got the numbers to back it up, they would be pushing pretty hard for it. Yeah, and I think that that's the, that's the thing that's changed for me the most since we, we spoke last is just the way business is – this is all becoming big business now. Yeah. Mm. And for me it was always a – you know, doesn't that concern, doesn't yeah, that concern does. you a bit? Yeah. Well, like $25,000 for a treatment, I actually get it. I, I understand the costings. Yep, that, that, that's, yeah. that's what it costs. But mm. if we're now offering that, it, it's really only people that are really well off mm. that are going to be able to access it through the research we've been doing already. We know that most people aren't going to meet criteria. And so whether it's a clinical trial or it's a treatment provided outside of a clinical trial, the inclusion and exclusion criteria don't change. So mm. if you're taking an SSRI medication, you'll still have to stop taking that medication before you can receive the treatment. So, so you know, lots of those things aren't going to change. So I worry of what this has actually done is um, increase, it'll, it's going to, it has already and it will continue to increase the demand for underground services mm. because I can get this, maybe not the same treatment, but something similar to this treatment, mm. um, you know, from someone in the hills for four grand. That's a hell of a lot better than $25,000. Mm. I can afford that. And so I do worry that a lot more people are going to access that pathway now yeah. because we've, we've increased everybody's awareness in Australia about these promising treatments, but yeah. we haven't provided any way of people accessing the treatment. And would that be for, sorry, no, is that for um, addiction or is that to treat PTSD? So the, the TGA has only approved the use of MDMA for PTSD right. and psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. Right. And an SSRI, that's your antidepressant, right? Yep. What's your opinion on them and their role? Because from what I understand, there's a lot of mixed uh, mm, scientific yeah. research and ideas. <laughs> Again, another very controversial area. Mm. Um, I, I think they can be life-saving medicines for some people. Yeah. So if somebody's very depressed and they're suicidal this can be a life-saving medication however i think they are over prescribed and they're often not being prescribed for depression so mm. somebody comes to the gp because their mum's died and they're feeling sad the gp prescribes an antidepressant i don't think that's helpful and what i've seen in the clinical research that we're doing is just how hard it is for people to get off these medications. Mm. We've had one success so far. Really? In close to nearly 20, 20 people that we've um, you know tried to work with. Wow. Only one's been able to come off their antidote. And it was friggin' hard work. The only reason he was able to come off is he's, you know, he's ex-ADF, so he's a stoic, solid guy, and right. he just white-knuckled it. Right. Uh, he had a really, really hard time. And I think, you know, his thinking now is, well, um, even if this treatment hasn't worked as well as he would have liked it to have worked, well, at least he's not on that cocktail of medications he was on before and he doesn't want to go back on those because he doesn't. He saw how hard it was to come off. What I'm interested in is why it's treatment, treatment, treatment and not prevention. Like there's, And I, I understand because the treatment for traumas is so broad. Yeah, you, you can't can be, prevent a, you can't, a yeah, war. Yeah, well, exactly. You can't prevent certain PTSDs and stuff like that. But... Um, I guess that's where it comes down to instead of prevention, potentially we um, we address the root cause, which we we spoke about before. And again, understanding that there's a space for these treatments initially because they help with something that's happening. But also, yeah, prevention in resilience training we've spoken about as 
as youth, and we we've had um, Ashley Harrison from Zero to Hero come on and talk about that specifically. But uh, is is that potentially an area we could focus on as well as yeah, just absolutely. instead of treatment, like mm. prevention in regarding to arming ourselves mentally strong enough to deal with these sorts of yeah, and, and some of it's not even, um, you know, like teaching people skills. Some of it is just changing the way that we do things in society more broadly. Most mm. of mental health is, is socially determined. It's determined by um, what socioeconomic class that you live in, mm. um, you know, whether you're religious or not. There's so many things that predict whether or not you'll develop a mental illness. And mm. most of them aren't personal things. They're, they're things that you, you don't really have control over. And so the way that we do things as a society in Australia and, the, you know, what we fund and what we don't fund from, gov- from what government funds, what government doesn't fund, has a huge influence. Like, I've, on one hand, I... Um, I, you know, I, I, I obviously think these uh, potentially promising treatments wouldn't be working in the area otherwise. Mm. But what I've noticed is this big business has sort of moved into the area in the past mm. few years is a lot of these CEOs come out with crazy, crazy ideas um, when they speak to the media or put out a press release. Uh, like I've seen one organisation in the US talking about addressing homelessness with psilocybin. No, no, you don't address homelessness with psilocybin, you're just homelessness with homes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no shit. You yeah. set up your country's yeah, infrastructure there's, properly. There's been a ketamine clinic in the US uh, that offered uh, ex-employees from a company that did some sort of downsizing. I can't remember what the company was. It was like Facebook or something like that. And they offered all of the ex-employees a free ketamine session. They don't need free ketamine. They need a job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we can't... Yeah. We can't create purpose and passion amongst every person in the uh, in the population, and we can't uh, implement prevention techniques with every person in the population. But we don't have to give treatments that are just serving no purpose because yeah. that just seems like it's going to uh, detract from the actual you know the solutions that we're getting out of uh, and the positives that we're finding out. Of some I of think those the reason the businesses are doing this this is just an observation watching big business move into the space. Big business need a talking point, like they need yes. something to be in the media. And so whether it's curing homelessness with psilocybin yeah. or yeah. giving ex-employees free ketamine, it gets them. It gets a news story. Yeah. Yeah. My fear would be that. Let's say we took Portugal's lead or everybody listened to uh, what experts like yourself are saying and we did take that decriminalisation and the money that we're saving from law enforcement. I worry our government would take the money they're saving and go, sick, all right, we're just going to use that and fucking yeah. fund more politicians or we're going to put the money mm. into mining and then you've still got the same problem. Well, how can we is avoid any that? Way, yeah. yeah, is there any... How would you stipulate that? Because it's an invisible and untraceable amount of future money you're saving... And they would just be relocating that budget somewhere else. Wow, this is a problem that we, we've already got. So, mm. you know, with the, the tax on cigarettes, for example, mm. not all of that money is going into preventing people from smoking and providing people with treatment. The, you know, all the excise on fuel isn't necessarily going to fixing the roads. That's so right. all this money goes into a big pot of money mm. and then the government decides how to spend that big pot of money. That sucks. There should be more accountability. But how do you get that? You, you can't. You, know, you just got to trust that the polit- politicians are doing the right thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Trusting politicians. Good yeah. one, Delby. That's the best joke you've told. <laughs> yeah. Fuck, man. Yeah, that's, that's pretty hectic. That's pretty bad. And I guess because your specialty is addiction, right? And you wouldn't even be able to address the prevention stage, would you? Because by the time you're getting people, you're trying to help them recover from dependency i guess there's 
programs or like awareness yeah. you could do, yeah. but do you have your hands sort of one hand tied behind your back there or? No, I, like as a clinician, yeah, you're right. I tend to, um, I tend to park the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff and that's yeah. people are falling off the cliff with addiction mm. and we pick them up at the bottom and we treat them, patch them up and send them back up and yeah. a, a bunch of them climb up the cliff and fall off again. Yes. And so I work with colleagues in, in public health that are trying to build fences around the cliff with signs saying, this is uh, cliff's dangerous, don't fall off it. Yeah. And so, yeah, so, so there is... Um, I don't think we do demand demand reduction very well in Australia. I don't mm. think any country, to be honest, does it very well. Mm. So, you know, the government spends money trying to reduce people's demand for drugs. So things like those meth ads where, you know, a young guy's bashing up his mum. Mm. It's trying to dissuade people from using drugs. But the problem with, with that sort of messaging and a lot of the school-based drug education is they focus on an extreme example that doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, their mate Johnny uses some drugs, has a great time on meth. It doesn't yeah. look anything like that. And so they question not only the information that they've been given from the government and the school about meth, but about other drugs and mm. other information they've been given as well. It would be far better. And I've worked with um, one not-for-profit organisation here in Perth to develop a game uh, for, for that... that high school kids play it's like a choose your own adventure type game yeah. is it lsd or is it acid is it, <laughs> yeah. is it meth or is it md but, but, but the, the 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 harms that the characters experience yes. are all high prevalence harms they're mm. things that you'd see quite frequently but they're not as severe give us some examples so like what like mental illness or, or not getting a job or um i'm trying to think of some examples in the game where um so, somebody one. somebody Somebody uh, drank and then smoked some pot and threw up yeah. and made a dick of themselves. Like yeah. that, That's a pretty common thing that happens. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Uh, very common. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it may not be um, life-changing most of the time, but mm. particularly in today's day and age where there's Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and everything else, like yeah. they can have a huge impact on your reputation. So Surely smart. they've never that, heard the rhyme. That's so the, uh, smart. W weed before beer, you're in the clear. Uh, what is it? Beer and then grass. You're on your ass. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's so. Because even I just went to the extremes there, like losing your job or whatever. But like as a teenager, if you are filmed yakking or, or something, <laughs> yeah. people are, oh, what a fucking loser. And yeah. then that gets spread around. Ooh. That's way more impactful and meaningful at that point in their life than yeah. thinking about, oh, I don't even have a fucking job yet. So what does it matter yeah. if I lose my job? One, one of my favorite um, demand reduction campaigns for smoking was um, just with some young people and you know a guy, guy goes to kiss his girlfriend she's like oh gross you yeah. taste gross like that that is realistic yeah and that's going to be that's messaging that young people will listen to yeah but telling young people they're going to get lung cancer in 90 years from now probably yeah, not no going to change whether they smoke or not yeah, yeah. that's such a nice shit because i used to be a teacher for 10 years i was like oh i always remember <laughs> that was one class that's way smarter because like I've I, I grew up thinking that drugs were the worst thing ever, but the, everything in moderation. Like you're not going to die from doing one ecstasy tablet. But I uh, I remember well, you might. when I well you might yeah, maybe yeah. test it first. Test yeah, it, yeah, 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 test it. Yeah, I remember. Um, I think maybe I was two or three years out doing a relief lesson, and they were like, "What does MDMA do?" And I I was trying to stay neutral. And I've said, "Oh, you know, like the." Music sounds um, better. Um, you feel like you're in love with everyone. Everyone's your friend. They're like, that sounds awesome. I'm like, oh, no, but uh, it's actually really bad for you. Like, don't yeah. hurt. <laughs> I had to catch and, myself. And that's what I noticed. Like, if you go to mdma.gov.au, we won't talk about the things you're talking about. It just will talk about the negative things. Yeah. And so another thing we can do better with drug education is 
um, treating young people like adults and saying, like you did, saying, well, these are the, the positive things, these yeah. are the less good things. Yeah. You might have unprotected sex and have a kid because you <laughs> want to touch somebody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, yeah. or you might share something, you know, very intimate that, that everybody in, you know, in your class knows about yeah. that you didn't intend to, for them to know about. Yeah, it's such a smarter um, way to come at it, for sure. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, So I'm interested then, I guess, if you're on that area of the, the, the treatment, do you guys play a role in, in prevention in any way? Or like in as in prevention of the drug taking itself uh, as a dependence? Not, not a lot. Not, for most people, no. I do because I'm, I'm sort of doing research across multiple areas. But mm. for most people working in this area, no, they're, they're just parking the ambulance at the bottom and mm. collecting the casualties. Mm. Um, the, the government, like legalizing things it doesn't it just make sense that they would legalize everything and make fuck tons of money and then use that money to do prevention or smarter advertising like and then you would because they're doing it anyway yeah, yeah you would eliminate every single like coke industry and you would eliminate all the fucked up shit that's happening all the crime everything else it just makes so much more sense to tax it and make it Safe now. What? 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 <laughs> What's the? Yeah. What? What's, right. what, why? Place, what point do you think? What part do you think? Uh, like big criminals play in influencing that? Like that's, hey, that's a, a good question. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Well, it's interesting. The first thing that crossed my mind as you were saying that, well, is is who's got a vested interest in yeah. not doing this? And the first thing that popped in my mind was the alcohol industry. And the yes. second thing that popped in my mind is is um, organised crime. They yeah. would, they're doing. You know, yeah. They, they, they would prefer to do it as organised crime. Mm. There's far bigger profit margins than setting up as a, a registered business and, mm. and paying your taxes. Mm. Mm. But their risk would be mitigated then if they if we could turn organised crime into legitimate business <laughs> right yeah their risk of going to jail and losing staff and and whatever would be completely minimized yeah it's just a win-win for everyone <laughs> <laughs> well i trust the bikies yeah. more than i trust yeah. the government yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's saying something well, yeah. but i think organize even if we legalize all drugs organized mm. crime will still be there it'll a just change form. yeah so yeah. human trafficking Personal. and other issues but Organised crime won't go away. There's, there's always going to be demand for it. But, um, yeah, it would legalising and regulating the market would significantly reduce yeah. organised crime in, in the drug, you know, in terms of drugs. Yeah, yeah. So, and so then that money could be better directed towards rehabilitation and prevention. It's yeah. just so much trust we put into people that are just like normal, everyday people, politicians. We're hoping they mm. have the answer to... They've got, like, issues about nurses, police, fireys, mm. housing, infrastructure, roads. Like, they've got all these other things, and you're just hoping that there's one aspect that they're going to make the right decision on. And you'll get so one... So complex. You'll get one politician come up with it, like, be honourable and go, yes, I want to make yeah, this yeah, change, yeah. but then they'll find a roadblock in 20 yeah. other guys and, or yeah. women. It, almost, it is almost leading towards we need an AI to make um, decisions that are better for... <laughs> oh, that don't have yeah, a vested interest in themselves. It, it makes sense. Well... It honestly does. <laughs> if you could get a program that would when they realise that we're the problem, together, yeah, <laughs> and they're like as long as it doesn't Skynet. Have, yeah, that's <laughs> what I was thinking. Skynet. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, then then you would take away all personal vested interest in mm. whatever, and it would be for the betterment of society. Yeah. But um, something you said before has been itching away at me. I've got to get it out. Um, yeah. Serotonin's produced in our stomach. That's a fact I quite often forget. Is there? Um, uh, uh, from what I've understood, the science says I could be completely wrong, could be a myth. 
if you deplete your serotonin and then let's say you do more drugs and it depletes and depletes, it never comes back. Is that true or is that false? And that's why people get depressed because they take more to get that same effect. Is it a time thing where if you offer it, your body will reset or are you completely fucked forever? So there's a hypothesis that's recently been put to bed that mm. depression is caused by an imbalance of serotonin. So the evidence is that... De- Depression isn't caused by a chemical imbalance. Right. Well, it might be, but it's not because of just low serotonin. It's far more complicated than that. Um, however, people's mood does drop when they've got low levels of serotonin. Mm. So it makes sense then that when people are using ecstasy, for example, a couple of days afterwards when their serotonin levels are low, they yeah. feel like shit, whether it's Tuesday blues, Suicide Monday. Yeah. Um, th- there is this thing that that's a real thing out there where people use ecstasy on friday saturday night and they feel shit on tuesday yeah um and so it would make sense that's to do with with depleted serotonin interestingly in clinical trials don't see that no nobody's got this come down that occurs Mm. afterwards in fact some people seem to have like a um, a honeymoon period afterwards where they're they're sort of on 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 cloud nine for a couple of days afterwards. So it suggests to me that, that partly the reason people are feeling shit after their, their ecstasy use is not just the ecstasy, but the fact they're not sleeping that night. Mm. They're exercising, you know, dancing, maybe mm. not drinking water, drinking alcohol on top, so okay. dehydrated. Mm. There's all these other things that are going on that might be causing that. Purity? Purity yeah. probably makes a difference as well. Yeah. That's interesting. So, so it's not so much that, that you're depleted in serotonin and that's why you're feeling shit. We don't really know why, some, why, why... It's definitely a thing, but we don't exactly know why it's a thing. And in terms of being able to recover, like mm. we are saying, the, the brain's neuroplastic. So um, even if you kill off a lot of dopamine neurons through methamphetamine use... If you stop using methamphetamine, they grow back and you, right. your dopamine goes that's back the, to normal. That's the myth that I heard that, that they'll never grow back and you fuck your brain forever. So that's Yeah, that, that definitely is a myth. That, right. that the, the, the myth is that the brain can't recover. Yeah. And it's incredible how much the brain can recover, not only from drug use, but traumatic injury as well. There's been a, I remember a case um, that must be a famous case that I studied as an undergrad where a person had uh, a young girl, maybe eight, nine years old, had half of her brain removed mm. to stop the epilepsy. Mm. And as an adult, she was functioning fine That's with only insane. half the brain. Unfortunately, the, the woke left will never recover from their brain damage. <laughs> but <laughs> um, yeah. So with the depression stuff, uh, depression, for, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the chemical imbalance sort of... Theory has that's been yeah, it just says it's been proven. It's completely yeah, it's proven, yeah. um, proven incorrect. So, does that mean all depression is situational? Mm. I, I think what it means is that we don't really know what depression is. I yeah. think people like these ex- people like a simple explanation. Chemical imbalance, yeah. great. We'll give people SSRIs that will fix it. Yeah. It's a simple explanation with a simple solution. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, most of these things are far more complex than, than we like to think they are. I feel like it would be the same thing with addiction. You need some sort of purpose, some sort of motivation, yeah. some sort of resilience and figuring out, like, not poor me or why am I here? And if you've got no purpose or drive, and yes. uh, of course you're going to feel shitter than everybody else, yeah. you know? And, then and you that, might turn to yeah. something else to get that boost to feel good momentarily and you've got mm. some sort of purpose and connection and then when that fades away and for some people that's chocolate and some people yeah. it's netflix but some people it's fucking meth and, yeah. and and that tends to be there tends to be a lot you know we're talking about functions of drug use and escapism is one of them and i guess this is kind of related but but drugs are 
are very good at adjusting our mood in a way that's mm. um, very predictable. So if I'm feeling like shit, I take this substance and I feel better. Mm. And so it's not surprising then that you see so much overlap with um, yeah. dependence, substance use disorders and mood disorders like depression. What yeah. closeness, because um, do you only do substance addiction or all addictions? Primarily substance okay. use. Because I was going to say, what sort of um, link is there with gambling addiction? Well, or is there no link? That would be chasing the same sort of bars. Yeah, it's wouldn't dopamine. It? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think, you know, what we're talking about with depression is is it's about um, balancing a person's mood out, mm. and with gambling could do that as well because if you're feeling like shit and you get on a good run, well, you're yeah. not feeling like shit anymore. It's yeah. improved your mood. Yeah. But but more like the function of how, how gambling works and, and the reason people become so focused on gambling is it is similar to a drug in that. Um, in, instead of putting something in your body that alters the, the function of your brain, mm. you're engaging with things in the environment that do the, very much the same thing. Mm. So, you know, the, the, the lights, the sounds, everything is set up with the slot machines. Everything's set mm. up to try to maximise the stimulation um, to, to, to maximise how long a person's going to stand yeah. in front of that machine and put yeah. money in it. And likewise, psychologists that have you know, sold their souls and work for the dark side now <laughs> set up these machines to, to pay out in a way that will maximise how long the person wow. spends in front That's of the machine. That's a pretty sad state of affairs that somebody has gone to uni to be a psychologist just to use that. Psychology yeah. to addict people to slot machines, and they've replicated that in social media. Yeah, and also mm. as thinking apps, just, just yeah. Out, yeah, social TikTok. media and apps more broadly. Yeah, we, like the scrolling function, it's similar to gambling. We're, we're yes. waiting for our next good hit. Yeah, so the re yeah. the refresh. I found myself doing it, man. The refresh, the pull down mm. for it to lo reload again, was based off the the slot, the slot machines. Yeah, um, so that's crazy that, that that gives you that that. Yeah, that yeah. and, and from that from a social media perspective, it's about getting you in front of your phone for the longest period of time. Yeah. So you're exposed to more advertising, advertising. and they're mm. getting the money through that advertising yeah. exposure. Um, is there any link as well, before I forget, 5-HTP, from what I heard, that's meant to help recover. Is it recover your serotonin or melatonin? Is that bullshit? Or is that just something that someone's used to market that 5-HTP? Well, th th there's definitely evidence that the precursor the, the, the chemical that's before 5-HTP is called tryptophan. Mm. You can find it in um, turkey and bananas. So, um, you know, the reason people often get... It's said that people often get sleepy after eating turkey is the tryptophan in it. Because the tryptophan, you take it in, your body turns it into 5-HTP in the brain, yeah. and your brain then turns the 5-HTP into serotonin. In terms of whether it's useful to be to pre-load pre or post-load mm. with 5-HTP, well, firstly, we were just saying that we don't even know what causes that come down. Is right. it serotonin? Who don't knows? know. Um, we don't know how well 5-HTP crosses the blood-brain barrier. So you might be creating a whole lot of serotonin, but it's in your gut instead of your brain because it right. can't cross into the brain. Right. And when when uh, do you have it, pre-load or post-load? Oh, I, I, <laughs> I'm just, it's something that I grew up. People going, oh no! Like if you, after you do M, if you if you have five HTP, mm. it's uh, it helps you sort of replenish. I, I think for serotonin. most people, it's probably not doing them any harm, yeah. but it it may actually do harm if you get too much That's serotonin in well. your body. That yeah. can cause cardiovascular problems. So for most people, it's not doing harm, but a less harmful way of getting those same ingredients would just be to eat, eat. a banana or two. Yeah, yeah. Like fo focus on foods that are high in tryptophan. <laughs> this yeah. is that f issue when uh, someone says, "Oh, the wine's high in antioxidants." You're like, "So are blueberries, <laughs> motherfucker." <laughs> You did mention that you've got a few different fields or studies that you've done. What's what's uh, exciting for you lately, and what's mm. been tickling your your interest, and what's some <laughs> stuff that that you really get hyped about? 
Yeah, it's probably been just the, the psychedelic stuff we've been talking about. So psilocybin and MDMA, particularly with the TGA making an announcement in February, like um, or even before that announcement, my, my focus was moving more and more to that area just because there's more and more excitement, more media. Um, but after that announcement in February this year, it's yeah, it's really taking up all of my focus at the moment. So I'm involved in other projects and I've said to people in those other projects that I, I'm starting to feel like a fraud because I'm not across <laughs> the, the material as well as I used to be. Yeah, right. I'm getting really distracted by this psychedelic stuff that's really noisy, loud and bright at the moment. Mm. But I, I think that's, <laughs> that's gonna change. The, that's the psychedelic you had. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think I, I think this is it'll be short lived, like five to ten years and you know, I come across so many psychologists that email me, phone me, um, wanting to become a psychedelic therapist. Yeah. And I, I, I guess what I say to them is, um, you know, there's not many options at the moment. But I, I think in five or ten years from now, psychologists are going to realise that they don't want to be sitting with somebody for six to eight hours Tripping with really out. nothing happening. <sighs> yeah. it's, it's, it's a certain person that, that is able to get meaning out of that work and really enjoy that work. And yeah. so very quickly, I think... The enthusiasm is going to wane yeah. and there'll be more opportunities. Like, I don't think a clinical psychologist needs to trip sit someone. You were talking about doing something you know, on the weekend. Yes. Yeah. I doubt it's a clinical psychologist that's overseeing it and I, d- I don't think it needs to be. I think this, this huge bill of you know, $25,000 treatment, we yeah. can reduce that significantly yeah. by providing different healthcare workers. So yeah. a counsellor, for example, somebody that's got some basic mental health training yep. and has you know, sat with people whether that's um, in an underground environment or at a festival where yeah. you're trip-sitting people that have... Someone you know, like yeah. a Chelsea or someone. Yeah, well, you know those people. You, you know them. They've, they've a stereotypical hippie type that love helping other people yeah. and will sit there and guide you through or be there for you and help you. Yeah. A lot of uh, clinical psychs or doctors or whoever, they're not that kind of person. No. They don't have... Unless they really, really care about helping, they're not, like you said, they're not going to sit there for six hours. We're not trained to do this. Yeah. They want to talk and go, hey, this is how smart I am. Let me fix you. Let's do this. Mm. Okay. I feel like I might have told this story when I was here last time, but in case okay. I haven't. Yeah. Yeah, we've got um, a lot of new listeners. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so one, another thing I tell people, um, you know, in terms of getting experience, the best way to get experience is to, to go out and do that peer-based harm reduction work, you know, at festivals. So there's organisations that go out to festivals and do that stuff looking after people. Um, the first time I did that myself was around 2012 uh, at a festival in Victoria with 20,000 people. Um, it's a four-day festival in rural Victoria, so people are camping overnight. And I went in there with such a big ego because, you know, like I've got a PhD in this area. I'm across psychedelics. I'm the psychopharmacology. I'm, a cl- I'm trained in clinical psychology. Yeah. I've, I've got all this experience. And the first person I worked with was um, brought in by one of the rovers. Um, so the organisation has people sort of roving around to, to find people like this fellow who was head down eating dirt. Um, <laughs> they, they brought him, stuck him on the back of the four-wheeler, yeah. brought him into the, the trip sitting area and, um, you know, I was... I was handed over him as my first patient um he couldn't the only word he could say was love nice. he had one word that and I, I couldn't tell lovely. if he was ecstatic or or extremely scared like he just <laughs> it's hard to tell on a person's wow. face yeah, yeah, it's yeah, bliss yeah. Or, or whether it's really unpleasant yeah and so 
Um, I think one of the first things I well, the first thing I did I, I I hope this was the first thing I did was clean <laughs> clean him up like yeah, the yeah. water because he, he then got a second word that he, he hold on water yeah. was a hold off because <laughs> <laughs> he, he was making the connection that love is water water is love right and so the, the I, you know the first psychological invention I tried to do though was progressive muscle relaxation where you get the person focus on your fist close your fist really tight let them go yeah. I didn't get it about as far as that. Like the person started to close their fist, looked at their hand, fell <laughs> through gone. their hand. And I realised in that moment, just throw out all of your training. Everything yeah. you've learned is a waste of time. Yeah. All you need to do here is just be a, a human with another human in this moment. That's yeah. all that needs to happen. Wow. But it was so humbling. Yeah. It was so humbling to have that experience of, of realising everything I've been taught is mm. not going to help me here. That's almost like you had a psychedelic breakthrough without a psychedelic watching someone on psychedelics wow. you're like just be a human just connect that's mm. incredible such a good experience so people that want to do trip sitting that's why i encourage them to do that sort of work volunteer yeah. work to, to get the experience one to see how you how, how you go sitting with someone for six or eight hours yeah. because maybe that's just not for you anyway i would frustrate the fuck out of me and, I already and, know. and a lot of it's you know really basic stuff like helping a person go to a toilet or help yeah. you mm. holding a bucket while they throw up it's yeah. the really basic human stuff you don't need to do clean psych training to yeah. be holding a bucket yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, it does seem these sorts of uh, epiphanies just come up like well, your ones come up organically, and I find that can happen to yourself. That can happen to anyone over time. Like experiences, something that you've heard, a song that you've heard fifty times, and then that one time you go, "Oh fuck!" Like yeah, you had that yeah. epiphany, and it means something. Uh, it feels like psychedelics are just a shortcut to just going. I don't need those four hundred times hearing that song to hear that one lyric, or I don't need to experience that. You know that breakup three times to go. Ah, oh, it's that fuck. Here's my shortcut. Here's that fucking elevator to God. Uh, that's what it feels like to me. And I'm I'm not certain that that's necessarily the best thing to have. Prevention, I think, is always the yeah. best way. And arming yourself with the tools to be able to fight through these sorts of issues. But um, I think it's still a positive to have these it, sorts of areas that it, we're specialising in. It is and. Um, maybe, you know, we're talking about different theories of how psilocybin might work as a treatment for depression. Maybe it's those manufactured epiphanies that, that, yeah. are, that make the treatment effective mm. for people with depression. Because I, I think with people experiencing a substance use disorder, those epiphanies are important to, to their making changes. So yeah. while, while we, we're not really doing much research in Australia with psilocybin and, and substance use, there's one study in Sydney looking at methamphetamine use. So they're giving people... Um, that use methamphetamine heavily recreationally, but they're not using daily uh, psilocybin experience to, to assist them change their, their substance use behaviour. Because we know in addiction treatment that, that when people have epiphanies on their own, that that often does lead to significant changes. Mm. But you can't manufacture epiphanies. Well, at least you can't manufacture them no. without psilocybin. Yeah. And they seem to manufacture themselves. And it does seem to think, like we said it yesterday, uh, that you know you are the problem and the solution. Yeah, yeah. So well, we said that today. Yeah, well. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that's what it always comes down to. Like it's always there. It's internal. Sometimes you just have to – it might take time, but you could probably take a shortcut. But it does seem to always – it points internally. Yeah, and if you own the idea as your own, like you said at the start of the episode – Someone's not telling you mm. this is the answer. To, you've created that and mm. you've owned that. So all of a sudden, 
It's a lot more meaningful well, when way it comes more from meaningful. you. Yeah. Yes. Whereas if I tell you something, it doesn't you know, mean much. Yeah, you've got that anti-authority in, initiative. Fuck off, what do you know? Yeah. You, don't know, you haven't lived my life. And yeah. it may be the reason people that have the reason people have these epiphanies, say with somebody with depression that's got this really, really rigid thinking style, mm. to turn that off, all of those beliefs become relaxed. They have this epiphany, oh, well, it doesn't have to be this way or I mm. don't have to think about myself yeah. this way. Mm. And it's that epiphany that, that seems to be... You know, have a lot of power. Yeah. yeah, I wish, and I guess we've just sort of touched on that by saying there is a way to, there is a magic pill. <laughs> it seems to be hallucinogenics, but fuck, you do have those moments, and you're like, why? Why did it take me it's fucking so long. so long to have that one realization? Because it to has ch- to. And I, I do think yeah. sometimes, I think sometimes the process is you had to have that experience. It's divine timing. That's my spiritual sort of side coming out, but uh, there is I, I actually other think, ways. I, I actually guess. think psilocybin. So this is personal theory now. Yeah. I, I think that psilocybin has a way of overemphasizing or exaggerating the meaningfulness of certain things. Yeah. And because oftentimes you'll have an epiphany un, under psilocybin that feels like a real epiphany until you come down and you realize that it wasn't even <laughs> thought it was. Yeah, it's 100%. <laughs> I had that in the shower when I was looking at fungus. I had a fungus in my armpit. I dropped down. I'm looking at fungus. I'm like, oh, I have fungus. Looking at fungus, and oh, this is so oh, magical. It all makes sense. It all yeah. makes sense. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm fuck all. I'm the one with everyone. And then trying to re-explain, it, I'm like, that doesn't mean <laughs> yeah anything <laughs> at all. But that's more of a because when you do have those experiences, like I, I've never had it on mushrooms, so hopefully I will on uh, on Saturday. But um, I've had it on weed when I've been very heavily stoned. Uh, I've had these epiphanies and understand. You feel like you understand everything for a temporary moment, yeah. and then you can't get back to that nah. moment. You can't get back to. Oh, it all made sense. Yeah. It but all the, made the sense. The message is still there. I still remember thinking, yeah. fuck, I'm just the same as everyone else. We're all one. That stuck, but it was a much more it's, it's the, emphatic... The, 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 under the influence, the, yeah. the meaning's been exaggerated. Yeah. So when, when the psilocybin's worn off, the, the message is still there. Yeah, it's yeah, the same yeah. message, but the meaning... It had all this meaning imbued on it with the yeah. psilocybin. Mm. And maybe that's, that's the beauty of it, is that, that the, the emphasis, the mushroom is... Forcing it so it stays after the trip. Yeah, yeah potentially. I, I've got there's a I've got a colleague that works at UWA. Chris Lethby wrote a book called The Philosophy of Psychedelics. Cool. And um, one of the big issues he tries to deal with in his book is, are we potentially creating false stories for people to believe in by giving them psychedelics in the context of therapy? Like if if um, if the person sees their situation in, in a different way, so they've had a mystical experience. For them, it was perceived to be a real mystical experience. Mm. But like we're talking about with the helicopter ride to the top of the mountain, some people would argue that's not a true mystical experience. Mm. But if the mystical experience means that they get better and they don't have depression anymore, is that ethically okay that it's not a real, you know, that it wasn't, that it's not a real thing? Or if, Mm. you know, they perceive their situation differently and they're thinking about it now incorrectly, but that brings them relief, is that okay? Mm. Fucking oath. Surely. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Like I I agree. It it it, it seems okay, but yeah. it does start to open some ethical questions. And, yeah, and if you're in the point where you you have to use those shortcuts to get there instead of building a solid foundation yourself, potentially there's issues. But if it is that shortcut, if it's to long get lasting there, and it mm-hmm. stays, then you can't really argue with the evidence that it yeah. it it doesn't matter if it was mystical or not or yeah. whatever. 
as the long effect, as, it, as as long as it stays forever, yeah. and as and long as you have the the, the realization that you've had on, mm. on a psychedelic or the epiphany that you've had on a psychedelic, yeah. So I think you implement Chris, change to to make sure that doesn't happen again. Mm. I think what Chris would say is it, it's fine, like you say, if you know that it was a psychedelically induced experience. Mm. So th- there's a question of whether it was real or not, or whether it's a, you know whether this new belief system is is real or not and and between the three of us it probably doesn't seem as much of an ethical issue as it does for a philosopher but philosopher but philosophers are all about what's real and what's not Mm. like what's reality what's not reality where does knowledge come from these are all the questions they're asking Mm. so from a philosophical perspective it is it's it is a much bigger question but Mm. ethically like i can't see if there i mean would it be ethically on part of the mystic experience ethics because ethically you're helping somebody and they're getting better mm. with no damage or minimal harm like mm-hmm. for me well, there's well, no yeah, eth- so, ethical so what chris problem is with saying that. there's potential what chris is saying is that there's a potential harm where they where, where their belief system is adjusted in such a way that it's no longer now um consistent with reality it's not right. a reality-based system it's been influenced by the psychedelic and they experience. can't function within okay. the, yeah so, okay. but, but they might still be fun like they might get improvement you know in terms of their their, their well-being their psychological well-being might be might improve but it's because of this new belief system that they've got mm. and so what chris is saying well is and i think he he comes to the same conclusion that yeah yeah if if a person has depression and they don't have depression anymore because they've got this uh, this yeah. new belief system, he, he kind of comes to that conclusion as well. Mm. But it is it's, it is kind of complex, though, when you start to think about it. Yeah. If you compare it to the norm and they think this, what we consider like a crazy or like the, uh, this, this thought that doesn't fit in with the norms of society, but it's helped them get better, I think that's just on par with somebody like um, John Jones who thinks he's the greatest fighter of all time. Mm. That might not be a normal thought, but he's used that and he's made himself become number one in the world. The way he would think would be completely different, and, and he's also and a better chance of being the number one fighter in the world if you're having that, that mindset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and like if you look at that as a thought, for me to go, I'm going to be the greatest fighter in the whole of the world out of eight billion people. Yeah, you would say that is not a realistic thought. That thought does not fit into our reality. So, and it, but it's helped me improve my life. And mm. the same thing with the mushroom trip. If whatever thought you've had on that psychedelic doesn't fit in with with the norm, but it's helped me get to where I need to be. I think it comes back to what you uh, suggested before, and you've suggested everything in moderation. Like if you can use it as a temporary fix and a a placeholder to to get you to a point where you do feel good, but you're making sure you're still doing the work and you're you're addressing the issues that potentially it's bringing up, I think then that's a perfect little melting pot of you're coming at it from both angles. You can't just go, right, here's my magic pill. I have my pill. I'm I'm going to be fixed. I'm masking my problems. But... I can do it to get me to a point where I feel better and then I can continue to work on the issues that it brings up. Interestingly, there, there, there's research happening at the moment um, to create non-psychedelic psychedelics. <laughs> what do you mean? So you, you that just, because then you will just take the pill. Mm-hmm. It will do the same. It will have the same effect in the brain, oh, but it won't produce any perception Like changes. a placebo. Because what's uh, a non-psychedelic psychedelic? Um, Is that like... So you wouldn't have the psychedelic trip out, I'd assume, but you'd have like the, the same molecular Yeah, so molecular in the brain, the same wow. thing's happening, but because of some slight adjustment to the molecule, it's not creating those perceptual changes. Wow. wow. So, so it might be creating neuroplasticity that lasts for a week after taking the pill. And if you do those new activities, um, then you create those neural pathways that are sort of bettered down, but you're not having the experience. And it's cre- as you can imagine, it's creating quite wow. a bit of controversy. Yeah. yeah, that's very interesting because, like, is the experience, the psychedelic experience, part of the experience? Is yeah, that part, part of the, the messaging or part of the, yeah. the learning? Because um, if it's not 
What? But, but if it's a cheat code, like you said yeah. before, like if it gets you there, uh, I don't know. It's what? interesting because there's there's that debate between like DMT versus ayahuasca, which is your, your quick little 15-minute one versus your journey and you're fucking mm. doing the work. So both have benefits. That blows my mind. Would, so what would be going on? With the, would they be leading you through cycle like through like counseling while you have that on or would you be they'd be leaving you to your own and just be normal like a normal medication treatment because there's no psychological effects you just take you know it'd be a bit like but it's making the change you kind of mentioned microdosing earlier it'd be like a microdosing thing where you're just taking this pill maybe only take it once or twice Mm. in your lifetime Mm. um and you're instructed to do something afterwards to to maximize the neuroplasticity. Oh, that I can't wait to see what the results are for those studies. Yeah, mm. when you come back on in the next year or whatever. Mm. Hopefully, how long? Do the, how long is the research? I reckon it's a few years out. So the, yeah. the companies that are looking at this, they're they're trying to create new molecules at the moment and right. sort of testing those in animals. But I'm not sh- I'm not aware of any research that's moved to humans just yet. How do you test an animal? What do you say to a cat? Like, what do you feel, man? Are you in the box? <laughs> are you in the box or are you out the box? <laughs> are you alive or are you dead? <laughs> Cats like, I don't know, man. I've had this before. Just don't ring a bell. <laughs> Or the dogs coming in. <laughs> animals, animals can't discriminate yeah. between different psychedelics. So if you train a rat to press a lever for LSD and then you substitute that with psilocybin, they, they'll just keep behaving the same way. Right. They don't know that there's been any swap in the drug. Right. So you're right. Um, animals don't know, like they can't report on their subjective experience. They can't even appear to distinguish between different types of psychedelics. So really all the work that's doing with animals in this space is seeing if it kills the animal. Yeah. Or not. The animal it's lives, fine. maybe it can be used in humans. It's yeah. interesting. Schrodinger would have been fucked. <laughs> well, it's interesting. <laughs> it's like cat death. So if know. you're going to use animals, do you have to put them in a position of almost depression, dep- uh, depravity, like what the Rat Park situation with that Yohan yeah. Hari's talked about? I think we maybe talked about it last time you were on. There's, there's lots of different models that are created to, to, to mimic psychological conditions. Um, mm. The one that's most frequently used with rats and depression is a learned helplessness task where um, four swimming tasks. So they, the, the rat falls into some water and they time how long the, the rat treads for water. And when it gives up, that's you know it's learned helplessness it's giving up so um if it's struggling for longer then it's less depressed if it, if it gives up really quickly then they're calling that a depressed race is, what? is this is this the one where what the fuck? So they, they put it in they dropped it in and it lasted 15 minutes and they died uh or that that's that was the time they could last before they would drown and then they did it again with rats and they took them out just before that 15 minute mark took them back out let them uh, rest, put them back in, and then instead of drowning after 15 minutes, they were able to survive for 60 hours because of the belief that they would be saved mm. uh, just as they're about to drown. So, so the, the power of the belief. Helplessness, yeah. Really? That's wow. is that the same is that the same experiment it's, or is it's a variation of it? Yeah, I haven't come across that, but that does make a lot of sense. So oh. the power of their belief that they would be saved just as they're about to drown kept them swimming. That's which a, is that's called Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but that, that 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 does show you the power of your belief and what but, it can do to yeah. help create a thing. But, uh, but your study, you're saying is the that opposite, is they it? let it drown. And if it drowned quicker, they're like, oh, he's depressed. They'll, they'll usually actually, because rats cost money, yeah. um, they'll, they'll <laughs> usually rescue the rat. So they'll time how long it takes till it gives up and then rescue the rat so okay. they can reuse the rat again. And they're using how long it struggles for as a measure of depression. So the longer the rat struggles, the less depressive that symptoms. That makes no sense to me at all. 
that's just a, a, a fit rat versus <laughs> well, a yeah. fucking another rat that just so happens to be shit at swimming. If, if you think that's bizarre, the way that they test for whether a drug is a 5-HT2A receptor agonist, or which is the, the psychedelic receptor site, yeah. is um, the, the rat shakes in a particular way. Oh, my God. So why do we use shake. rats? Why? I don't understand why rats. Are they close to humans at all? They're not that close. Yeah. And a lot of the, it can't be I, d- I hope not. They're... <laughs> <laughs> The reason they're used is because um, they you know, can breed lots of rats very quickly yeah, and, yeah. and you can start to play with their genes so you yeah. can knock out certain genes so you can have rats that all develop cancer. Yeah. And so yeah, on one hand, it doesn't make any sense that we're using rats. They can't discriminate. You know, with psychedelics, it makes no sense because yeah. um, I think Alexander Shulgin, who wrote uh, Phenethylamines Have Known and Loved and Tryptamines Have Known and Loved, that was one of the first things he pointed out, that all this research with animals, yeah. with psychedelics, is makes no sense. waste of time. 100%. Makes no fucking sense. It's like, oh, yeah, well, they've cured cancer in rats. Like, sick. Wish I was a rat. <laughs> <laughs> like, that fucking Fuck. has... It's like I saw a... a ta- uh, they did a, a, a research um, on dementia in mice, and they were like, oh, you know, we gave mice had dementia, and then they had the treatment, and then they started acting like young mice again. Yeah. I was like... That's what dementia is in adults. <laughs> like, we start acting like kids again when we get older. It makes no fucking sense. Mm-hmm. Like, unless we do human trials. And because psychedelics is more of an ego ex- experience about consciousness and, our, and the human experience. Why test it on, unless it's Master Splinter that can talk. <laughs> Let's not do it on and, fucking rats. That was, that was Shogun's argument for the work that he did because he would design all these new drugs, synthesize them, then test them on himself. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if they seem like they were working and they weren't causing harm, increase the dose. Yeah. Then if they still look interesting, introduce them to friends. And he sort of wrote all of this up. And he yeah. was arguing this is why he was doing it the way he was doing There was no point giving it to animals. They weren't going to be able to make those mm. um, intricate distinctions that he was well, making. As- between the- especially yeah. if we've just talked about the fact that your mindset, your setting and everything yeah. is going to play such a factor if you're a fucking rat, yeah. there's going to be... If I'm a rat, I'm thinking, this cunt better not drop me in water again. <laughs> yeah. I bet you they're both depressed when they're just dropped in water. Like, 100%. They're equally depressed. Um, on that, and I'm conscious of your time, we've yeah. gone about two hours. Uh, maybe we can finish up with a couple of this. Um, the So we touched on it earlier, um, the, the mindset and the setting up. So how should I prepare going into my experience? Like what should I... So I've been told no alcohol, no coffee, um, you know, eat as healthy as I can and um, journals ideas that no I sex sort of I do that all the time just yeah, hoping I'm well, going to get my they didn't say that but that's not an issue <laughs> tell me um, yeah what, what's the what, what's my best preparation or for anyone else that uh, yeah. allegedly might be trying to uh, indulge I, I think everything that you've talked about is really good uh, everything that you're talking about is sort of bringing you into the present moment so if you're journaling or something it, it's sort of bringing stuff that you're thinking about from the past or the future and putting it in the present moment um, pl- playing music can be useful listening to music can be useful particularly if you know what sort of soundtracks are going to be playing on the night so mm. you're sort of pre- f- prepared familiar with the music can be helpful mm-hmm. um, I, I think a lot of the, the stuff I do with people with preparation it's, it's more a combination of integration and preparation so after you've had the experience getting a copy of the playlist so you can listen to it you know, in the weeks wow. afterwards okay. and drop back into that experience and revisit some of the thoughts Replicate that were happening it. there. Okay. Um, drawing, not just journaling with writing, but yeah, I, I personally I can't draw. I'm not a huge fan, but yeah. other people can, you know, you can express things in 
um, in a drawing that you can't in written words because yeah. a lot of the experience is symbolic. It's not semantic. It doesn't have words. You know, we, we say the experience is ineffable because you can't describe it. So, yeah. so being able to draw or something like that is good. But, yeah, outside of that, looking after yourself, um, I think if you ideally if you can meet with the person at least once but more than once before the experience, so you're mm-hmm. comfortable with the person that you're going to be around. Obviously, if it's in a group setting, you, you don't you won't know the other people there, and, mm-hmm. and you know that that's it is what it is. That's just that's just what it is. But if you, you, you're always going to have a deeper experience if you feel more comfortable in the situation where it's occurring. Yeah. So if you feel comfortable with the person that's facilitating, that's going to make a huge difference. Well, mm-hmm. that's good to know because uh, yeah, I have have met them, uh, had a good chat with them on the phone yesterday. Today, prep me up with some ideas and what we can be doing, and um, yeah, it does feel comfortable. It's one on one, so I won't have oh, any other distractions. Yeah. Excellent, so, yeah, um, yeah. I'm I'm very excited to see what it does. Like I'm a, I'm a person who likes to try everything. I don't think I'm not sure this will be like a I do this constantly. Like uh, I know Delby allegedly has uh, tried a few times to work through some things, and that's worked for him. But for me, it's like a let's see how this yeah, goes. Yeah, like you say, you, you try lots of different things out. You're very much into self-experimentation. Yep. So I've heard about this. I'll try it and see. Do an mm. N equals one experiment on myself and see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Is, is there a, a particular mushroom strain that is better for, oh, yeah. say, f- em- emotional healing? Or is it... Or is it just comes down to the amount of psilocybin that's in it? Just psilocybin. So it doesn't matter what the strain is, it's just the psilocybin. It could be it, called it, penis envy, yep. gnome's dick, fucking whatever, as long as there's psilocybin. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, all, it's, it's like alcohol, the conversation we're having yeah. about different beverages and people thinking uh, this does yeah, that yeah. or the other. I think that's bullshit because you, synth- you, you metabolise it all the same yeah, way. So it's all alcohol. Uh, yeah, except yeah. for... Um, Tequila, which is a different form of alcohol, from what I understand, agave or something. But ethyl alcohol is yeah. ethyl alcohol, same. and molecular structure, molecular level, it's all, all the, the same. same. And with the mushrooms, yeah, there'll be different variations in psilocin versus psilocybin, right? And really, probably the only difference that will make subjectively um, might be the, how fast the experience comes mm. on, oh, yeah. maybe the intensity of the experience, right? But but really, you know. Then it's just about dosing. So yeah. if you took the same dose of the, some different mushrooms, so you got the same amount of psilocin and psilocybin in your system, then yep. you'd probably have a similar, experience. very similar experience. I was thinking when we were talking before about all the, um, you, know, you know, like doing things in a hospital room, obviously not an ideal setting versus what yeah. you're sort of talking about. Um, one of my colleagues in Melbourne has recently finished a trial where they were administering psilocybin to people that were either meditators or non-meditators right. and then stuck them in an MRI machine. Yeah, that's fucking scary. I could ass. not think of anything worse on yeah. a psilocybin experience than being locked in an yeah. MRI machine. It's all that noise and it's claustrophobic here in a hospital. That, that's the <laughs> extreme example of being in a really clinical yeah. environment. Yeah. Like I, I, and unsurprisingly, he was saying that a lot of people were struggling yeah. with, with, with that experience. And do, yeah. the, do mushrooms um, primarily work on the brain? Is there any physical um, like healing or, or muscle repair mm. or anything else that happens with a mushroom? Or is it all up here? We, we, well, we don't really know sure. how any of the repair works at the right. moment. So we've got all of these theories about how it might work in the brain. Mm. And so as soon as we move out of the brain to the body, like the example you're saying with your back, yeah, the yeah, body yeah. remembering, it's, it's a thing. Lots of people seem to be reporting it, mm. but we don't know why that even happens, let alone, um, yeah, we're, 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 
So there clearly is some interaction between mind and body, but it's pretty mm. hard to distinguish what's what. Well, I we guess saw all on the news that woman that fed the husband, the ex, and that mushrooms. Was that <laughs> is that a specific a mushroom that's known to just murder people? What's the go with that? It's called the death cap. It's called the death cap for right. a reason. <laughs> so she's deliberately done that, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> okay. So that has an effect on your what your lungs or your heart or whatever. Yeah, liver actually liver. It stops the liver functioning. So wow. you, you, your liver just it takes a couple of days to, which is why you know from from the perspective of trying to murder somebody, it's not yeah. a bad mushroom to use. You're away. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. You've got sort of seventy two hours before the person ends up in the hospital. Yeah. Um, but yeah, once the per- it's once once your liver's failed, you're kind of screwed yeah. unless you can get a new liver really fast. And that's a different class. That's not a hallucinogenic. No. It's just like a like a. It's actually poison. the same class of drugs as the uh, same class of mushroom as the, the the white and red amanita mushroom. You know, the like the Christmas mushroom. Yeah. It's a related. The death caps related to yeah, that. Yeah. Right. What were you going to say? Oh, I can't remember. Um, with addiction, is there anything else that they've found or dependency that – so we looked at physical activity to come full circle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, you're interested in to see what effect we can rewire our brain with uh, hallucinogenics. Is there a third or fourth? Because for me, I feel like your social network and your the money that you have and the, the, the area that you live in is going to have a bigger influence than anything else. I agree. Because yeah. you've got constant peer pressure or like the, the pathway of slowing, going down a slope with skis. When you go back to the life you've lived, you're going to go those familiar paths, which lead back to uh, yeah. taking substance. Yeah, so, a- absolutely. So th- that's why I brought up Portugal as an mm. example where, you know, they're, they're getting people into a different geographical region. They're getting them out of their peer groups. Mm. They're providing meaning. These, these are the things that we know are most important for yeah. people to successfully change. Yes. Also, um, the motivation at the start, like mm. if you're doing it because uh, my wife's going to leave me and take the kids, that, that could be enough to motivate you to make some change in the short term. Mm. But if you're not doing it for yourself, it's not going to work in the long term. Mm. So in that instance... Um, you know, it's just slightly reframing the situation and why you're doing it. It's not because the wife's going to leave me and I want to take, and she's going to take the kids. It's because I want to be present and yeah. um, a present father in my kid's life. Like yeah. you're talking, it's basically the same thing, but slightly different ways of thinking about yeah. it. And that makes a huge difference. As far, as far as I'm aware, in Portugal, they're not only doing that; uh, that they're 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 not only relocating, but they're putting money that they're redirecting it back into the community and improving the lower socioeconomic economic areas to make them more enjoyable and less uh, and, and yeah changing the the the, the surroundings yeah, the, for the, the, those people there's a big focus not only in portugal but other european countries you know some people would say almost socialist approaches where um, they really are focusing on putting a lot more focus on the social determinants of mental illness and and, and substance use um, disorder rather than rather than the treatment itself so mm. Um, yeah, looking at welfare systems mm. and all of those sorts. Of, yeah. these are and these are often the conversations again that politicians don't really want to have because you don't you often lose an election mm. as a consequence of some new you know um, socialist strategy, but yeah. you don't often win an election coming you're coming in with that yeah. as a plan. Yeah, be, I mean the best thing by the sounds of it uh, uh, of Tenacious House is that they all have shared goal they all want to be there so potentially you will make a new circle of friends with a f- sim- similar goal 
they would, seem would to they be. move and work in the same? It's a double-edged sword there. Yeah, because like, if one falls off, they all fall off. Or that can happen. Yeah. and I, I actually see, I've seen this more in mental health services than addiction services. Unfortunately, if you've got schizophrenia, mm. you probably don't have a great social network. Yeah, and so you end up building your social networks when you're in hospital unwell with other people that are in hospital unwell. Yeah. And consequently, that then becomes a thing that um, sort of anchors people from being able to do well in life because their only social networks are other people that are very unwell. Mm. Where it'd be better to have a more heterogeneous mix yeah. of people that you're interacting with. And right. likewise, yeah, with, with people that are accessing substance use treatments, they've generally got other things going on in their life as well. There's yeah. mental health issues, there's family issues. And so, yeah, you, you might be increasing your social capital or increasing your social network, but mm. maybe it's not all good capital. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's, do they ever ask for volunteers? Because I do need some gardening done. <laughs> if, they, <laughs> if, they, if they want to come out, I have a garden that, that needs help. So I'm sure if you reach out to Shalom, <laughs> that will give you a quote for that. Actually, yeah. Yeah, that's not a bad move. Um, thanks so much yeah. uh, today, mate. We could talk to you all day. Yeah, fucking so awesome. I don't want to keep How, going. Can we do a late entrance for best episode? Yeah, yeah, fucking awesome. It was a very good episode. Always is. Last episode was incredible. Yeah. And um, potentially we'll mention it at the start. Mind. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and have a listen. But yeah. Uh, anything to plug, mate? Yeah. Anything that you're excited about coming up? What you what you're doing and what we should be looking at? Help or I, I actually, yeah, I, I don't have anything to plug because um, my, my phone <laughs> rings non-stop as it is. Um, <laughs> so much so that I actually don't answer my my work landline anymore because it's people wanting to participate in clinical trials yeah, and cool. it's all difficult conversations. Like if I answered the phone, I wouldn't get any For work hours. done. Yeah, because you know someone's distressed on the phone. You can't just sort of just try to shut them down and get yeah. off the phone. Mm. You've got to, you know, be, be empathic and, and yeah. hear their story. And unfortunately, I just don't have any places in a clinical yeah. trial. So I feel that's a reflection of society at the moment because my friend works for the NDIS across the road. The number one thing is all of these people with trauma that have no way to deal with it and they're trying to get funding and just trying to find a solution. And if somebody's doing a, a trial with ketamine or MDMA, they're going to try something that they haven't been able to to do before so we're fucking crying out for it mm. yeah well that, that, that's definitely what I've learned um, with, with the, our trials is there, there is so much demand for the treatment the problem is unfortunately a lot of people won't be eligible for the treatment because mm. of medical comorbidities that they have other psychiatric comorbidities medications that they're taking mm. um, whether it's complex or simple trauma there, there's mm. lots of factors that are going to come into play so I, I feel like this is this is definitely a problem these, these are definitely promising treatments mm. but I, I think the amount that it's going to actually help people has been really overestimated. Yeah. People aren't going to be able to access the treatment because they can't afford it. They're not going to be able to access the treatment because they don't meet eligibility requirements. Mm. And so it would be far better, like the conversation we've been having today, yeah. far better to spend more of our time building the fence on the cliff so people don't fall off the cliff in the first place mm. and we don't have to look at these different sorts of innovative treatments yeah. when other treatments aren't working. Well, if people are struggling with addiction listening, where would your point of call be? Because mm. I know it's hard to find good services or just be... Like waiting list might be, yeah. you know. So we've gone through a few things that we can do outside of um, mm. seeking uh, treatment, like you know, mindfulness, doing some thing, di things differently, trying to get away from that victim mentality. But if they're stuck, where, where would you recommend one, so one the, or two the places? First step is whatever your state you're in is um, is to go to like the state coordination point. So mm -hmm. in WA, it's the Mental Health Commission, and they will they they on their website they've got 
information. I'm not sure if they got a map, but um, you know, there's different government-funded services for different parts of Perth and different parts of regional Australia. So mm. they tell you, so basically, where do you live and mm. which is your service, and they'll um, point out which one to call. I, I'd say those state, uh, those those government-funded um, services for alcohol and other drugs, uh, they're, they're free. They have mm. good people working for them. Um, they often do get a lot of turnover because people come in to become a psychologist and as soon as they're qualified go, screw this, this yeah. is way too complicated. I'd rather, yeah. I'd rather set up my private practice in Mosman Park and work with a worry well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but yeah, they're, 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 it's a really good place to, to access information and find out what other services there might be that are out there that, yep. that people might access. And I think the other, the other key message I'd have is, is to try different things because you know different things work for different people yeah. and there are lots of options out there and so try things that even 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 things you, you think might not be a good fit like going to an NA meeting for a lot of people you know I'm not into God not into that yeah. but then they find you know that, that's just a good crew of people they mm. like those people it works for them so yeah it's really about trying trying out different things trying things that you might might not normally try yeah. because there there's heaps of support out there the problem is people don't know the supports out there yeah yeah, because like a, a lot of people go see someone. Nah, fuck! I saw a site, didn't work, and it's yeah, just well, one because it even, might be a dick. This, this is probably heresy, but I would say rather than accessing a psychologist in the private sector, you'd be better off going to the the government funded services. Because mm. as a psychologist myself, I know they don't train us very well in treating substance use and addiction problems. Yeah. And so unless someone's got expertise in that, yeah. you're probably going to get the same sort of stigma that you would get if you were you know trying to access help elsewhere in in um in the local so, healthcare community yeah. so it'd be, it's better to access it from the public service 100 um where there isn't any of the stigma there yeah, and yeah. yes you know it can be uncomfortable going into weight room because there's probably people that are more unwell than you are that are in that waiting might area. make you feel better about yourself <laughs> yeah so, i mean some it might make you feel better about yourself yeah. some people find it a bit uncomfortable being yeah, around other sure. people but yeah. ultimately it's just a good starting point because yeah. those crew are connected in with all of the supports yeah and they'll be able to work with you to be able to figure out where's the best spot to go yeah. next well, that's how and we it, feel when wolfie's in this studio so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's also facing your reality when you are in a room that helps yeah. you drop your ego. Like yeah, you're not, a, you're either not on a, you're not as good as you think, or you're not better than everybody else, or other people are going through the same thing with yeah. you. It's a nice, hundred percent. Nice? I wouldn't know. I haven't been in that situation, but hmm. you know, whenever you're with like-minded people or people that share something with you, yeah. it's nice to know you're not alone. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, yeah. Very good episode. Thanks said. so much, mate. Yeah. Delby, you got anything to plug? Yeah, not alone. Teachers, we're in it together. Uh, well, <laughs> I used to be, but now I profit off the shows. So <laughs> December 14th, um, get along to Teacher Comedy Night. Use the code late to the party uh, for the listeners. Patreons, you guys have got a 20% and 50% off depending on your tier. Check your Patreon. Um, but yeah, uh, then next year, uh, we're, oh, I just launched this morning the Astor Theatre Show. April 12th so the big show oh that's exciting yeah. Delby i got nothing to plug except for this cool listen to the podcast to the get pod. on the Patreon uh, right. and I'll, I'll have some comedy shows coming up but aside yeah. from that uh, yeah get on the Patreon and, been, and get us the, this money. has been the booster for my brain I needed this week <laughs> I've been good. saying to Branchy we need to get an expert in and yeah. stimulate those fucking neurons get some neuroplasticity <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Legit. Now, yeah, yeah. yeah and then we've got a climate scientist tomorrow Jesus it's going to be <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be exhausted by the end of the week but yeah. mate thank you so thank much thank you so much fucking awesome well, episode as usual um, and we'll get back on again uh, in a if you have in time. a year and a half yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sick yeah. awesome cheers